Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Iron List. Bling, bling. Yeah. This is, a, this is a list podcast. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for the rap and also sometimes consequence. Mm-hmm. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I uh, write a bunch of articles for Slash Film. You sure do, buddy. And uh, I write like four or five articles a day over there. You're very prolific. You put me to shame. Not just an article form. But uh, yeah, this is our list podcast. We do a monthly list podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can hear our podcasts ad-free and get a whole bunch of uh, exclusive podcasts. We also have a monthly poll. Our patrons get to pick one topic and every month Whitney and I will do competitive lists he comes up with a list I come up with a list of the best in that topic mm. and uh, this month it is the latest in our ongoing series where we are picking the very best films that just happen to start with a certain letter of the alphabet they have nothing else in common they are all different kinds of genres all different decades but this time they all just happen to begin with the letter F F for fa. That's it. That's it. That's very, very simple. Fa, P-H-O, fa? Because that doesn't start with an F. No, okay, it doesn't start with I wasn't thinking of... (laughs) I actually love fa. Fa is delicious, but no, I wasn't thinking of fa. Uh, There's there's a statute in California. You're Mm. not allowed to open a fa restaurant unless it has a clever clever pun in the name. It's, yeah, if if you don't have a pun, like, the police will shut you down. And, and, um... Like there's a, I don't recall voting for that, but you know it was not. For sure. Yep, I remember for uh, sure. Yeah, or maybe it's for show. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, one in Beverly Hills called nine zero two one. Fa. Yeah, which uh, is basically ju- it assumes people are misreading the word fa because it's spelled P H O and so Americans are, like pho. Yeah, Americans will probably assume that means pho, like phone, but it's actually mm-hmm. pronounced fa. Yeah. Uh, so kind of kind of ruins the joke, mm-hmm. but they're assuming you don't know it. We got off the beaten path. Uh, it's very, very simple. Whitney and I each come up with a top ten list of the best films in our estimation that begin with the letter F. We do our top ten lists a little differently from the way most people do. Most people rank theirs. Number ten isn't as recommended as their number nine and so forth. We don't do that. If they made our top ten list, we want you to see every single one of them. They're all tied except for our number one. We take our number one seriously. It's the movie we'd pick. If, like, aliens landed and said, we will destroy the planet unless you tell us what you personally think is the best mm. film that begins with the letter F. There, we uh, have to have at least one that, we, that we're taking a stand on. Okay. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I don't think there's anything else really to, to lead into this time. It's a pretty straightforward <laughs> prompt. <laughs> really casual. I can't think of it. Just, just destroy the planet. That's fine. <laughs> I, I don't care. It's fine. Um... Would you like to start, or shall thing? I? No, okay. Uh, why don't you start? I like it. When, I like it when you start. It gives me a lot less pressure. Yeah, you like it when I start. Also, I think you like to have the the last word. Oh, is that? Oh, that is how that works. Yeah, I really was thinking you, about you it. You would go second. That means you'd go last. But it doesn't necessarily because when we tie, it actually messes up the order, and we. Like, That's true. That's, so we, we have no it, way of knowing. Yeah, by a tie, I mean right. we both pick the same film. So okay, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything. All right. Um, I was tempted to put uh, Frankenstein. It's kind of an easy one. Yeah. 
Start with Frankenstein. It's also, you know, we're, we're recording this at the beginning of the Halloween season. Yeah. Or or if you're a craft store four months into the Halloween season. Well, we, we joke about that, but uh, the people who make crafts have to make them in time to sell them at I, Halloween. I so. understand that. Okay. Not everyone does. You, you go into a craft store, you can find Halloween stuff, like, as soon as school gets out. Pretty much. It's pretty pretty kooky. Um, so, yeah, Frankenstein is a great movie. I will, uh, I will just... Give give a little bit of a shout out to James Whale's movie uh, because it's really great. But you're not picking Frankenstein. But I'm not picking Frankenstein. What are you? What are you I'm mean? picking a Frankenstein derivative because there are other Franken things. Frankenfish? No, I'm not picking Frankenfish. Franken. I actually haven't seen Frankenfish. Oh, well, you never lived. Uh, Franken Cat. There's a uh, uh, Frankenweenie. Frankenweenie is uh, quite good. Both versions of Frankenweenie. No, uh, there's good. The, the live action short and the animated film are both quite yeah. good. But I'm going with Frank Henenlotter's Frankenhooker. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I love Frankenhooker and. Everyone I'm sure I've brought it brought it up before. Everyone likes Frankenhooker. Yeah, Frankenhooker is more than a funny title. It's actually a pretty good uh, film as well. Mm. Um, uh, it's about a, a man whose uh, fiance dies. It's a nineteen ninety. This was nineteen ninety, and nineteen ninety mm. was a good year to be Frank Henenlotter because. <laughs> Frank, in the early 80s, Frank Henlotter made Basket Case. Mm-hmm. and uh, Which is one of the best sleazoid, it's, yeah, it's, it's grindhouse, like, you know, we shot this without any, like, permits in New York, and New York just looks like, shady yeah, and it, wonderful. It's like the, the worst parts of New York, and, yeah, uh, the, the actor's named Kevin Van Hentenrick, and he, yeah. he's carrying around a, a basket with his, like, his brother in it. Yeah. And his brother is just like a blob of flesh with a, a monster arm and fangs. Yeah. And, and he just walks up to people who have wronged them and opens the basket and then the brother yeah, kills the, them. The brother Belial yeah. jumps out. It's uh, a, it's g- disgusting and great. <laughs> um, uh, Patty Mullen, who is a, a former penthouse pet mm-hmm. plays the title character, uh, in Frankenhooker, in, Frank, in Frankenhooker. Yeah. Um, she plays a character named Elizabeth Shelley. Isn't that cute? I get it. Mm-hmm. She, she, she wrote that book. Uh, James Lawrence plays Jeffrey Franken. Yeah. Not Stein, just Franken. I get it. No, I get it. I see what you're going. Yeah. I see where you're and, going. Uh, yeah, she dies. She, uh, oh, how does she, oh, she's killed, she's killed in, like, a lawnmower mishap. Okay. Like, a lawnmower goes crazy and mows her over and cuts her to pieces. And, It'll happen. Uh, yeah. And, uh... Uh, Franken Jeffrey Franken goes a little bit nuts and uh, decides I'm I'm going to study in my lab and see if I can bring her back to life. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of shots of him just sort of like tooling around this lab, raving to himself, trying to piece pieces together and drilling into his skull uh, yeah. just to let the pressure out. Okay. And uh, and he's also created like a three foot brain with an eyeball in it, huh. and that's like kind of his lab. That's fun b- mascot. <laughs> Like that, it's about. He's got it on t-shirts. Yeah, and he's very proud. I love and, uh, it. He, I love it in movies when like mad scientists, like something bad happens to a mad scientist, and it's like it's like an evil version of The Martian. I'm gonna mad science the shit out of this. Oh. <laughs> you never see that with other jobs. It's never just like, yes, this uh, this film critic and their mm. spouse died a horrible death, and they got to work trying to figure out how to resurrect them through the power of listicles. <laughs> How sad. Just chanting these listicles. Number nine. Basket case. You got a certain number of hits. They come back to life. (laughs) Oh, now I have to, like, check the SEO. God. 
God help us. That, that That's a horror movie for us. SEO uh, is the worst thing that's ever happened to writers, if you ask me. Well, that's probably an exaggeration, well, but it's really bad. I was supposed to say that that's, that's my living, dude. No, I, I know. I, I do SEO. Um, I know, but SEO, SEO is... SEO forces us to chase trends, and I, find, true, that, uh, I find that frustrating. As, uh, very briefly, coming off Frankenhooker for a second, yeah. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization, uh, and uh, magical wizards uh, have access to magical numbers that exist in a cloud somewhere. Yeah, and uh, they can see like what search terms are just trending, sometimes on an hour by hour basis. Yep, yep. and uh, they will throw a headline at you. This mm-hmm. is my job. It's like here's a bunch of headlines that are trending now, yeah. based on topics. That we we are believe chasing. based on search engine optimization, these yeah. would do well at the moment. And uh, often those pieces would just be just filler. There there would be nothing in it. It would be content. Yeah. Uh, and luckily at Slash Film, they let us sort of write real essays, but yeah. we do have to go by the headline. Like that's yeah. our guide. And yeah. you know when you're. Uh, sort of out of ideas, if you run dry, those can actually help you a little bit. Sure. Uh, but that's what SEO is. It's about chasing the trends. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of it as like a matter of right. principle, but it is what it is. Uh, Frankenhooker, as the name would lead you to believe, is also a pretty sleazy movie. Yeah. Because a- after uh, this bout of trying to piece pieces together and drilling into his own skull, he takes to the streets of New York, picks up a bunch of sex workers, brings them back to hotel rooms and kind of measures them to mm. see if he can kill them, cut them up, and use their body parts to, uh, and sew them together, yeah. and create, you know, recreate his bride, which of course he does. Eyes without a face. That was the name of a movie. Yeah. Which did that plot, and, and so, uh, did, so did the brain that wouldn't die. But by, by the, yeah, by the time uh, the Frankenhooker is charging around New York, and she's great, by the way, mm. she's like, spasms and makes faces and mugs and has this wonderful like oversized shoes mm-hmm. uh, well like, it goes like, Frankenstein Fra- shoes yeah she, she has Frankenstein yeah. shoes on and like long purple hair and like yeah. stitches everywhere I always wondered why Dr. Frankenstein was like let's make him taller like why was he, why does he need lifts <laughs> like he's, he's, what did you okay I think the idea was we weren't supposed to see the lifts we were uh-huh. just sort of supposed to see like a big lumbering gate now nah, we can see the lifts uh, and, but there is there is a reason why uh, the Frankenstein monster was large and uh, oh if yeah you read the book no no because he needed to be bigger in order to make this the the uh, it was easier uh, for Frankenstein yeah. to stitch together Assemble bigger the, parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If they're really tiny and intricate, it's harder than if he's really gigantic. Yeah, so they make a big plot point out of that in Young Frankenstein. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's actually in Mary Shelley's book. That yeah. was That was a, a plot point from the, the original story. Mm. Uh, sadly, Frankenhooker is not like a seven-foot-tall monster. Ah, uh, it's a bummer. She's like a five-foot-four monster. Okay, well, I'm not going to judge. But yeah. Um, this film is... So much fun. Uh, I, I talk about uh, films that were made to look weird versus films that were made by, like, weird people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frankenhooker is definitely the latter. Frank, Frank Hennenlotter has just a genuine interest in telling these fun, sleazy stories. And he's not apologetic mm-hmm. about how sleazy he wants his stories to be. I try to recommend Frankenhooker as often as I can, and so here I am. You know, I've never seen Frankenhooker. <sighs> Test, test. You've seen Basket Case, though. I've seen Basket Case. I've seen uh, Basket Case 2. Okay, which, I've seen which, Brain uh, Damage. Those are all okay. great. Uh, Basket Case 2 came out the same year as Frankenhooker. Mm. Uh, it took, like, it took almost a decade to make Basket Case 2. Yeah. Joe Bob Briggs uh, has a wonderful thing. Uh, he says, why did it take so long to make Basket Case 2? It took that long to reach perfection. <laughs> because... <laughs> 
Basket Two is pretty. Basket Case Two is fucking awesome. Basket Case Two is some of the best makeup you're ever gonna see in any. Movie. Oh yeah. yeah, it's really like holy. Like you look at the monsters that are created in Baskets. There's a whole bunch of monsters in that yeah. one. You're like, wow! Like a what, really, what an imagination! Really weirdly you've got. creative. Yeah. yeah, just it's really, really, very impressive. Um, well, normally for my number ten, mm. uh, I go for something a little bit more like esoteric or unusual, and I do have mm. at least one of those. However, you gave me such a great segue. Uh, I was very tempted to put Frankenstein 1931 as my number one. Okay, but I ended up deciding not to go with it. But it is on my list. Okay. I love Frankenstein 1931. I love I think, it too. Yeah. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. I It's so easy to take that movie for granted. That wasn't There have been other Frankenstein adaptations before, going way back to Thomas Edison. Yeah. Like yeah. before in like the dawn of, of, of cinema. You, you can find a production still yeah. from the very first uh, known film production of Frankenstein. Yeah. But the film itself is lost. Yeah. If you watch Frankenstein today, and especially if you watch Bride of Frankenstein, but that's a different list, um, it's uncanny how modern it feels. Mm. Just how... In terms of like the, its pacing and it, its editing and its the, camera setups. The camera yeah. setups are so fucking dynamic and interesting. The production design is so gorgeous. We just did a commentary track in our Patreon page for Dracula 1931, and mm. Frankenstein came out two years later. Two or one? Two years later, right? One 1933? Later. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, it came out right afterwards. Mm. And... Dracula feels so retro compared to Frankenstein and just how science fiction-y it feels and how (laughs) gothic and how this incredible, like, Boris Karloff's absolutely astounding performance as the monster. There's a thing that Boris Karloff does that I've never really seen any other Frankenstein monster do, and that is be dead. Yeah, yeah. He, he gradually, over the course of the film and over the course of the, at least the first two sequels, and after that it gets weird, but uh, he becomes more human. Mm-hmm. He comes into his consciousness. He becomes more conversant. He becomes more eloquent. He is able to express inner depths. Mm-hmm. The first time you see Boris Karloff as the monster, he walks in very slowly and the camera pans up. You realize his synapses are not firing. He is a walking corpse. Yeah, yeah. And... If you've ever seen, and I hope you haven't because it's really very traumatizing, but if you've ever seen a dead body, uh, you realize just how like eerie it is that there's just no life yeah. in someone's form. And it is incredibly difficult to convey that and still move. Mm. And Boris Karloff is probably the greatest movie zombie just because he captures that so beautifully before anyone else did it. Mm. I mean, there have been other Frankensteins, but he feels like he's inventing something. Yeah. And it's truly uncanny. Um, it's a very tight, like, 70-something minutes. It doesn't feel like anything's missing. It feels very intense. The monster is incredibly sympathetic while also being frightening because he doesn't understand his strength and he accidentally kills a young girl. Uh, everything about this movie is gorgeous. And it yeah, really it's... does feel like one of the cornerstones of cinema where if you remove Frankenstein, so much is gone. Yeah. So much of our touchstones about what labs look like and what castles <laughs> look like and what horror movies feel mm. like and how horror movies tackle the great ineffable mysteries of creation. Mm. It's a truly incredible motion picture. And I, I, I sometimes I like it more than Bride. Right. It's really, really I, great. I'll say this. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein has sort of gone through... 
you know, over the course of the many decades, you know, the critical yeah. reevaluation. Like yeah. this, this one is actually the superior movie, and yeah. in many ways it is. It has better special effects. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more dynamic. It's way funnier. It's really um, funny. Yeah, you know, it's also more uh, subversive. Yeah, it's like there's there's yeah. queerness all over that thing, and mm-hmm. um, but Bride of Frankenstein ain't scary. Uh, no, it's it, not. it doesn't have really. Like frightening moment, maybe at the end a, where where everybody kind of like dies in a fiery explosion. That that's a little it has a little disturbing. But themes, if you're mm. willing to meet the movie on its own level and not sort of look at it, yeah. If you can sympathize, especially with the monster and with the bride, mm. uh, you realize just how utterly tragic that is, and there's a there's a certain frightening despair in that. Yeah, but it's not scary, scary. And yeah. I think the original film is pretty scary if it's, you're it's pretty scary if you don't uh, need like a bunch of violence in order to be scared if you can just ease, ease into the the, the 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 spooky tone of it the the scene in frankenstein that disturbs me the most is uh, mm. after frankenstein has has drowned the little girl uh-huh. uh her father finds the little girl's body oh, yeah. And there's this like long tracking shot of the father carrying the girl's mm. body into town, yeah, just completely destitute, just pure grief. And during while just like a lot of bustle and celebration mm. going on outside, and, and as he goes and everybody realizes. like quiets yeah. down as he walks through, and it stays on him, yeah, and everybody else around him. It's like, always impressive when movies. Down. Too many movies treat death like a plot point, mm. and when a movie stops to acknowledge the horrors of death, this is why, like I, you know, I don't want to support the Harry Potter movies right. Now, but like the the moment at the end of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, when the dad oh, sees the his dead son, oh, that yeah, yeah, that yeah. actor played the shit out of that. Mm. He knew that that's like utter despair time. Yeah, and it's like it like really brings the movie. It's a downer ending. It has to be. Death matters, and it's really is special when a movie, especially a movie about conquering death, understands the actual tragedy of death. Mm. So yeah, Frankenstein, I, it's came this close to being my number one. It's so good, but there's a lot of great movies yeah, yeah. that just happen to start with F. What's your next pick? Um, yeah, I, I have like a lot here, so I'm like kind of, what do I want to talk about next? Yeah. Um, got a lot of like fun genre films on here. Got a couple documentaries. What do you want to talk about? I don't know. Uh, what, you, got any, you got anything funny? What do I have that's funny on here? You F, do it. F for funny. <laughs> Um, here we go. Here's one that's funny. Tell me. And this is this is one of my favorite musicals. Oh, interesting. And it's and it has the word funny in the title. It's called oh. a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. It's a oh, ri- funny thing happened. But yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's what I said. Okay. Uh, it's it's a Richard Lester film. Yep. Uh, Richard Lester did uh, a Hard Day's Night, and uh, and and help. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the Lester Three Musketeers. Did, the Three Musketeers. He did um, the Knack and How to Get It. Several uh, of the um, Superman sequels. He he took over Superman two after uh, they they produced some of it. And then they the movie was going way over budget and decided to stop and finish Superman one. And then they brought in Richard Lester to finish it for some reason. I don't yeah. know why. The first one came out great. And then they brought him back for Superman three. Uh, and mm. boy, you can. Tell that there's a difference. <laughs> well, He's Superman, a very different director. Superman three is, is more of a comedy film than like yeah. an, an adventure picture. Well, and if uh, you watched like the Donner cut, which is a bit of a Frankenstein monster itself because it wasn't really finished. Uh, if you watch the, Superman two, I'm sorry, you watch the Donner cut of Superman two, and then you watch the actual cut of Superman two, you realize Lester brought a lot of different tones, yeah, and a lot less uh, devotion to the character <laughs> than and to the gravitas of it all. He didn't care. That's fine. I, that's I'm, not, I, I'm not I, complaining. I actually, I'm saying he's a very different director. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, th- this idea that you need like just the right director to make some sort of like secret, th- especially these days, like they're oh, all God. It's commercial enterprises. The, the producers yeah. making those movies, the, the yeah. director hardly matters. Well, I just I disagree with the idea that only one person can make a movie or that can even like play a character. Like no, well, what, what other I, people can do that. Like let it let the, them try. The, the, the frustrating thing is you know um, just sort of the 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 debates you have with people who should uh. direct this. It, Someone it doesn't doesn't really fucking matter. No, does they're it? only they're yeah. only going to be allowed to bring so much to it. Yeah, yeah. it's like some people are better like than others. Seventy percent done already. Like they're they're whatever. There's a few people who managed to make it uh, work, but anyway, Richard like, Lester, Richard Lester, <laughs> please. Yeah, directed a movie about funny um, things and forums. Not the, not uh, not like Reddit. Not not like online forums. Nothing happened. Nothing funny has ever happened on Reddit. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. uh, Started its life on... Well, I guess it started its life with uh, Plautus, the uh, ancient playwright, uh, and created a character named Pseudolus, uh, Mm. was like the clever slave. Okay. Uh, And, you know, ancient Rome, everybody had slaves. It was just part part of life. Uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, adapted that into a musical in the 60s, and uh, Zero Mostel played Pseudolus on stage. Right. Zero Mostel also played Pseudolus in the movie. Yeah. And uh, it, it, Pseudolus is... Uh, they, they open the musical with, uh, this is not a tragedy. There's nothing serious in this. The, yeah. the song is called Comedy Tonight. We're yes. Just, we're just going to be Tragedy watching, tomorrow. Uh, comedy, comedy tonight. tonight. Yeah. yeah. Nothing... Uh, no, nothing with gods, nothing with fate. Weighty, where's, weighty affairs will just have to wait. Yeah. Uh, is one of the lyrics. Um, thank, thank you, Sondheim. And uh, it is a slapstick farce par excellence. It's it's on level with you know your your Monty Pythons and your Casino Royales. Like it has that kind of raucous energy to yeah. it. Uh, the story is uh, Pseudolus is the slave of a son of like a wealthy uh, homeowner. Mm-hmm. And while the homeowner and his wife are out of town, uh, the son has fallen in love with uh, a woman who lives next door. Next door is a brothel. So mm. he, uh, Pseudolus has to pretend to go in there and, and buy her, take her out of the brothel. Uh, the brothel owner is played by Phil Silvers. Mm. Uh, and the young lovers get to have their love story. Meanwhile, Pseudolus is doing everything he can to secure enough money to buy his own freedom. Yeah. So he's scheming and plotting, and there's all kinds of little subplots and sub-characters. Uh, the encroaching... Uh, the the approach of the young woman's... Uh, like, this general called Miles Gloriosus has already bought her, so she's sold... So they have to find a way to abscond with this young woman before he gets to town. And of course they fail and there's mm. all kinds of misunderstandings and people are related who haven't said they're related. And the old man comes back and he wants to cheat on his wife. And there's a, a, a cup of magic potion that will make somebody fall in love mixed into all of this. All of the usual it's pretty ridiculous. farcical stuff. Yeah, it's a bunch, it's a bunch, mm. it's a bunch of farcical stuff. A bunch happened. of farcical and, stuff. And it all happened while we were on our way sense. to the forum that day. Yeah, funny thing happened. Although, well, it, it's a joke that's uh you know a comedian's line like a borscht comedian funny thing happened on the way to the club tonight yeah uh, so they just said well what if an ancient roman said that a funny thing happened on the way to the yeah. forum there's a lot of cute little uh, ancient rome type of jokes mm. like uh somebody's offered a bottle of wine and they point to it and says it was one a good year uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. that was kind of, that's kind of a cute i've only gag. seen this movie once mm. it is very funny yeah, it, yeah, you like it a lot more than I do. It didn't come anywhere it's, near my list, but it's, it's I, I, yeah. I appreciate why you enjoy this movie because it's, this is just body silly. Yeah, it, it's, I'm amazed Mel Brooks wasn't involved in some way. It, it has that Mel Brooks vibe yeah. to it. It's it's 
really fucking sexist. Uh, oh, like yeah. it's, it's sexist like crazy. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, this was the, the mid sixties. It was yeah. the time for that kind of humor, I suppose. Uh, yeah. The, the women are treated just like ogle objects. Like there there's, or harridans. They're, yeah. they're, they're not like real characters, but yeah. uh, you know, that's sort of what the, you, the musical was you, made you either, you're either, you're either, But either is a, such a turn off you can't watch it mm. or you can roll with that and still get something yeah. out of it. Like yeah. it's, it's not hateful luckily. No, so yeah, you, just, can, you can still watch it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I watched this movie in high school. I watched this movie in high school a lot. This is a, a, a film I really fell in love with. So I got to mention it here. Awesome. Uh, I have, I have, do I have more than one? I have at least one just straight up comedy. Okay. On my list. And this is what I was going to pick as my number 10. Like okay. I said, the one that I'm going to bat for that I don't think anyone else would put on their list. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that came out eh, about 10 years ago-ish. And everyone who saw it liked it, but not enough people saw it. And every single time someone says, hey, what's like a good, funny, buddy-type comedy thing mm-hmm. that I could watch? I will recommend this movie, and I've never heard of anyone who didn't like it. For a good time, call. Oh, I don't. I don't remember this. one. You remember this one? Okay, so you, I think I feel like you saw this, but maybe you didn't. Um, for a good time, call stars Ari Grainer and Lauren Miller Rogan. Lauren Miller Rogan is uh, a very career oriented. It's kind of an odd couple kind of thing. Uh, she loses everything and ends up having to uh, become a roommate to someone who she knew from college, but she hates because right. she was just kind of a stereotypical party girl. The one big memory they have together, she like threw up all over her. So she's not looking forward to this at all. But it's they need the apartment. They're both they both need it. So she moves in with Ari Grainer. Ari Grainer is absolutely hilarious. Lauren Miller Rogan's also hilarious, uh, and it's not going well. And then. Something happens, and Lauren Miller Rogan realizes that the way Ari Grainer makes most of her money is through phone sex. Okay. And Lauren Miller Rogan realizes, wait a minute, I'm like between gigs right now. That is incredibly lucrative. Mm-hmm. And so they decide to go in together using her business acumen and Ari Grainer's skill at phone sex and start their own company. Okay. And through the course of the film, Lauren Miller Rogan comes out of her shell. Ari Grainer starts to actually open up and take her life a bit more seriously. They become very, very close. And they. It, it, what I love about this movie is that at no point does it demonize sex work. Okay. It's actually seen as, there's a downside to it. It doesn't always go great, but it's okay. actually just a job. And they treat it like a job, and it has respects like a job. Yeah, uh, you know they don't want their parents to find out, and there's a whole scene about that. But for the most part, it's actually just a solid buddy comedy about starting a business together. They are so unbelievably funny. <laughs> Everything they do is funny. There's there's this there's that sort of uh, you got to break them up towards the end of the movie so that they can come together again as friends, and they find this incredibly clever way. To bring them back together in such a way that is not romantic, but does manage to completely mirror a phone sex call. Okay. Like, in this very clever, we've oh. thought this compl- whole thing out completely way. There's a bunch of weird cameos from, like, uh, 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 Kevin Smith, Seth Rogen, a few other people as the people who call them. Mm. Uh, so there's a bunch of little funny bits. Um, it's just, it's remarkably sex positive. It's got really wonderful character work. And I laugh and I laugh and I laugh. Hmm. It's every single scene in it okay. is funny. All the characters 
are good. The story is simple, but very well thought out and is actually very effectively mined for a little bit of drama. You actually care about what happens to them, even though the stakes are relatively low. Okay. Everything about the movie works. And it's really pissed me off that, like, nobody saw this thing. It came and went... I remember when it came out it, yeah. now, but you know, it now that you're out. describing it. But yeah. yeah, it was in two th- it was ten years ago, like almost to the month. Like it came out in August thirty first, twenty twelve. It's so goddamn funny. If you think you've seen like I, you, you, if you think you've seen every comedy or whatever like that, it's seek out for a good time call. It's usually pretty easy to find online. It's just one of my favorite comedies now, and it's just a go to. What should we watch? And we can't think of anything. I will show someone for a good time call, and they've never been disappointed. uh, Every single time they say, that's great, thank you for showing me that. I just looked it up. It's not available on any of the the streaming services, but... Oh, really? uh, Subscription? But you can rent it. Okay, so good. It's it's worth a couple of bucks. I do recommend it. Punk down $4, and you can rent it. I really think, and I know money can be tight, and if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. But if you can afford to rent a movie, I would... Seriously, I'd, I'd gamble that you would consider this a good investment. It's really, really funny and very, very sweet. So, okay. Uh, I just think it is... It, there's an argument to be made. I think it's one of the best comedies of this century so far. Oh, that's so. a high praise. No? Uh, yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty high standards for comedies. But this is this is one of the films that hits my standards. So, there aren't a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, I was... Uh... My uh, my wife is a big fan of uh, the actor Adam Scott. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, so she watched a film called Bachelorette, which was uh, oh, yeah, a yeah, film yeah. that came out a couple of years ago. Was that the one that mm-hmm. um, Leslie Headland did? Leslie Headland did that Yeah, I think one. it was her yeah. first film, yeah. She did that, Rob. yeah. She did that one, then she did... Um, uh, Sleep with Other People. Sleeping with Other People. Yeah, uh, Love Sleeping with Other People. She's uh, She did that show Russian Doll, that mm-hmm. was hers. And, and now uh, she's doing Star Wars. And she's doing Star Wars. Good for her, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, happy for her success. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, Leslie Headland's made like two utterly excellent comedy films mm. because Bachelorette is great and Sleeping with Other People is also great. I actually haven't seen Bachelorette. I need mm. to get around to that, but I love Sleeping with Other People. But she but, also yeah. wrote that really unusually good remake of About Last Night. She wrote that one. She wrote yeah. that one. I think Jeff Pink? Steve Pink. Steve Pink. Steve Pink directed that one. It's pretty good, but like it, sharp screenplay. Really good job. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so yeah, uh, excellent, excellent film. Please go see it. What's your next pick? Uh, this is uh, <laughs> this one's a laugh riot. No, this is one of my favorite science fiction movies. Okay, uh, I think this is one of the best science fiction movies. I have a suspicion. So uh, this is Fantastic Planet. Oh, interesting. Not where I thought we were going to go with that. Okay, I could have said Forbidden Planet. You could That's have also, also a great movie. Uh, I might still mention that one. No, Fantastic Ooh. Planet, uh, La Planète Sauvage, as uh, an animated film from uh, 1973. Uh, directed by a, a director named Rene Laloux, who I don't know beyond this movie. Mm. Uh, Rene Laloux has done like a few other uh, like cult animated movies I, that you might have seen like in the cult section of your video store. I'm going to look him up because I'm curious. If I actually don't know. I, I've seen Fantastic Planet, and it is excellent, but I don't mm. know if I've seen any other of Rene Laloux's films. So tell us about Fantastic yeah, Planet. Um, Fantastic Planet... Uh, it's even debatable if there are even any humans in this, but it takes well, place on a distant planet uh, among a species of aliens called the uh, the Om. Mm-hmm. Om uh, is uh, is a play on words because French for like man is H O M M E. Om, or excuse me, the the Om are the the, the little ones. Uh, the, yeah, that's the, right. the, the little the, ones are the Om. The big ones are called the tra the trogs, oh, yeah. and the trogs there are uh, you know. 
20 feet tall. Uh, they have blue skin. They have no eyelids. There's mm. like just these big, round, uh, glowing red eyes. They wear these sort of really unusual outfits. They have these webbed ears. And they have devoted their lives to kind of uh, learning and meditation. Mm. And a lot of the film is devoted to them sitting in, like, learning machines or meditation chambers, and the animation gets really wild, and their bodies vanish, and their eyes go go blue. And as uh, sort of childhood pets, they have Om. And Om are... They look just like humans. Yeah, they're very, very tiny but compared they're to li- the... Little to teeny the, tiny. Yeah. And uh, the story follows one of these little humans. Uh, they're typically seen as pests. Yeah, these little human-looking like, things. They, if you if they're not specifically a pet, they're vermin. Yeah, they're like little like, things living in the walls for you to it's, exterminate. Yeah, it's, it's or, like a, or, it's, yeah. it's like having a pet rat. People have yeah. pet rats, but if your your house has rats, that's a yeah. problem. Yeah, uh, if you didn't specifically invite it, mm. you're not happy about it. This one little um, this little mm. uh, little human-looking thing, mm. uh, starts wandering around the house of the trogs and finds the learning machine and starts to learn about them. Mm. And becomes intelligent. And all of a sudden we have this Planet of the Apes thing where the Trogs have to face the fact that these like subservient things that they thought were animals were actually uh, things they could communicate with. They're actually intelligent beings. Yeah. 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 Uh, and wouldn't you know it, there's an uprising. These little yeah. teeny tiny human looking things uh, yeah. start attacking Trogs. And there's a, actually a really notable scene later in the movie where they knock one over and kill it. It's like... Yeah. All it's, of a like, it's like, like trying, oh, it's like shit. trying to kill a twenty foot tall giant, you know. Yeah. And uh, the really cool thing about Fantastic Planet is it's not just devoted to that. It's not incident. It's not mm-hmm. story. It's actually really mellow and meditative throughout. And there's a lot of really wonderful scenes where the camera just drifts across the alien landscape, mm-hmm. and we see alien stuff. It's so weird. You can't. You, can't, you don't. You don't yeah. know what it is. You yeah. don't know like what. Like if if it's like what these life forms are doing or what sort they sort of serve and uh, what sort of function they serve. Yeah, and uh, it I, it I, it's feel it's using animation to its fullest extent. Uh, yeah. in, in terms of science fiction, because we think of science fiction as you know, if, if you think of it in live action, mm-hmm. there's only so much you can do visually. Yeah. With with practical live action effects, yeah, specifically, uh, as, those, especially yeah. when you're you know doing like aliens or alien animal yeah. creatures. Like look at for example what the original TV series of Star Trek did. They pushed mm. the boundaries as much as they could, but they were very limited. Yeah, and yeah. you know the fact remains is if you're going to have an alien in live action, you either have to make a puppet mm-hmm. or you have to have something that an actor can fit inside of. Yeah, animation you have no such strictures. Yeah, you can just draw whatever you want to and. So when you see something like drift across the landscape and then plant itself and then kill a creature next to it, yeah, it's like oh, that. This is like the completely surreal, uh, like surrealist landscape that Rene Lalou has created. This is something that I absolutely miss, and I feel as though, uh, in particular, Star Wars kind of changed this a lot. This idea that sci-fi, like fantastical sci-fi, not like really grounded sci-fi, like the world is normal, but we invented a new thing. But like, you know, off in the stars somewhere. Mm. The idea that it would have to be grounded. The idea that it would everything would feel functional. Everything would feel really used. Everything would be recognizable. Like, oh, this looks like a Wild West town. I get it. Mm. I Science fiction has so few limitations. Mm-hmm. 
And there are not enough movies that I feel acknowledge that and play with that and are willing to feel, if it takes place on an alien world, truly alien. Yeah. And Fantastic Planet is one of them. It definitely feels like you're watching something genuinely bizarre, even though there's this odd grounded thing. There are humans there. Yeah. Were they abducted from earth and like like you know like a finding nemo kind of way and they were put in this aquarium and now they're, they're just on this planet is this our future where we conquered and we have no idea yeah, there's, what is this there, there's, there's no explanation yeah, for it really and there there's like there's an explanation mm. but the explanation doesn't make any sense the explanation like doesn't when, help us when yeah. when when we learn like where the trogs minds are going when yeah. they meditate they actually reveal what that is but it doesn't it's, help it does yeah it doesn't explain anything though yeah. it's just sort of oh that's what they're doing it's like Wait, in that what? movie, uh, in that movie, defending your life. Oh. Guy's in an afterlife, and he has a lawyer defending everything he did in his existence. And mm-hmm. one day, his lawyer can't come to the courtroom, and he has to have like a substitute lawyer. And he's very mad at his lawyer. He says, "Where were you?" It's like you would not understand. <laughs> he's like, yeah, well, try me. I'm smart. I was at the juncture of interstellar fault. <laughs> I don't understand exactly. <laughs> You don't know. The juncture of interstellar. I, I'm like getting that. it slightly wrong, but it was yeah. like that weird and obtuse. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's, you don't know. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's rare, A, that science fiction films are able to do that, and B, that yeah. they even have the ambition to do that. And yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. I think Star Wars might have been the turning point. Because yeah. uh, a big part of Star Wars, uh, the design that a mm. lot of people reacted to was everything looked used. It wasn't yeah. this clean future where everything, everything was, was brand new. Functional. Yeah, yeah. Like engines didn't work. Uh, yeah. pa- the paint was chipping off of stuff. You know, like, even was... in 2001, a lot of the spaceships felt very, very real, but mm. the alien stuff, it's a, it's a fucking monolith. The whole point is we don't even know what the fuck that means. Yeah. What yeah. is that? And they don't really explain it. Like, you interpret it. Like, 2010 kind of does, but it's still fucking Uh, weird. 2010's not... I like it okay, but it's It's, not great. It's It's fine. fine. It's fine. But, like, Uh, yeah. I feel like... And and when I I come across a film like that, that really makes a world seem, like, strange and effable, like, like I haven't seen something like that before, or or just makes me feel, like, lost in this really strange landscape, that's... One of one of the greatest things that a science fiction film can do. Yeah, that's probably why I reacted so strongly to a film like Mad God. Yeah, uh, which you know t- does take place in this weird, rotten world made of tool videos. Yeah, at uh, the very least, uh, you're you're transported somewhere, yeah, even if you're not. You, even, even if you're even, not like, even if you're like me, like you're kind of a bit more interested in plot than that yeah. movie is willing to give you. No, I don't at care. least it's I don't different. Care, yeah. I, I saw some shit I never saw before. Yeah. I'll give you that. Uh, plot, plot plot not so not so important in that one and. Yeah. Uh, even something like uh, Prometheus, uh, which I know mm. a lot of people don't like, but I- I'm very fond of Prometheus, and I think it's because they give us a lot of weird shit in that movie. They do. And uh, Ridley Scott is determined not to explain all of it. Uh, yeah. So there's a way to interpret that as being like a Christian metaphor. Oh, sure it, it is. takes place on, Christ- on, uh, on, on Christmas. Christmas yeah. It's a Christmas movie. Yeah. Uh, and there's the, it's about meeting our creator. Meet- yeah. Meeting our creator and this notion that something happened on Earth 2,000 years before that made them mad. Yeah. And now they're sending like demons to kill us yeah. all. It's like, wait a minute. What happened 2,000 years ago you like that, that would have made gods mad? You like that movie a lot more than I do, but I did rewatch it recently because you've talked it up so much. Yeah. And uh, I will say this, masterfully executed in terms of production design. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great. great it's an amazing... It, it, you're right. It feels alien. Like, mm. it's a very strange creation. I just... 
don't think the story works at all. I'm oh, sorry. Wow. <laughs> but even the stuff you're talking about, I think is I think they raise the question, but I think they answer enough of it in a way that's like, nah, that's that you, you came up with the bad answer to that. But um, anyway, I, back, I, back, I, back, I, I dig me some Prometheus. That's back to Fantastic Planet. Um, yeah, please see Fantastic Planet. It's very odd and very very strange. And I, my next pick is also a sci-fi film that is very odd mm-hmm. and very very strange. However, it's a lot sillier. It is Mike Hodges' Flash Gordon. <laughs> That's on my runners off here. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, Flash Gordon is my Star Wars. Uh, yeah. if, if if asked to choose between the two, I'm going to choose the one with Queen on the soundtrack. I mean, you can't go wrong with Queen yeah. on the soundtrack. Like between this and Highlander, like you fi- <laughs> find movies with better soundtracks. I defy you. Uh, uh, here, here's yeah. here's the frustrating thing. Uh, I understand that. I think it's um, hmm. I think it's a kind of magic. The Queen record. It's a kind, a kind of, of magic. magic. It's has, a song from Highlander. Has all the, all the songs from Highlander on yeah. it. And uh, so they never released a Highlander soundtrack record. Yeah, it's just... Get like a kind, kind of magic, magic. instead. Yeah. It's all, yeah. They're all on there, but... Although uh, there's actually... Uh, there's a cover of... I think it's New York, New York. There's mm-hmm. a... Queen does a cover in the movie. It's not on the soundtrack. Ah, test, test. It sucks. Yeah, I really... I always wanted to hear that whole song. Uh, but... But, yeah. Uh, Flash Gordon? Uh... You can you can get that uh, that famous John Williams Star Wars fanfare. Yeah. Da dum dum. Superman Star Wars. Uh, kind of Indiana Jones and, too. They, they sound yeah. a lot the same. And, yeah, he's uh, got similar riffs. A lot of, <laughs> lot of musicians too. People uh, always give Danny Elfman credit for like ha- they always give him crap for it. Like oh, Danny Elfman stuff sounds the same. You know, John <laughs> Williams has a few riffs he keeps coming back to as well. We're not gonna, they work. I'm not complaining, but they sound a little similar. Well, you you have hire you ever, those composers to get those riffs. Have you That's ever the point. have you ever hummed like the theme from Indiana Jones and accidentally wound up with Star Wars or Superman? I know I am. No. Yeah. The, the one that um, there's a bit in the Superman theme that goes mm. and you always want to sing Superman, Superman yeah. right in that little bit. Yeah. He knew um, that was important. Uh, f- fuck all that. <laughs> because we have seven Brian May guitar solos <laughs> layered on top of each other. You have them harmonizing in falsetto, yeah. just singing what Flash Gordon is going to do. And what's he going to yeah. do? He'll save the universe. He'll save every one of us. He'll save Fight for us. every one of us. <laughs> My God. Flash Gordon. And, and remember, Flash Gordon is what George Lucas wanted to make. And when he couldn't get the rights, he made Star Wars instead. And then Star Wars came out. And then they put out Flash Gordon. And it ended up feeling like to a lot of people like a Star Wars knockoff. Flash Gordon was the thing that inspired Star Wars. What I, I like Star Wars a lot more because Star Wars has, or I like Flash Gordon a lot more than Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars has humor. There's funny yeah. bits in it, especially yeah. with uh, Harrison Ford. Yeah, he's very funny. Uh, yeah, great counterpoint. Flash Gordon is it, it, it's it's almost a spoof how funny that thing gets sometimes. Well, it's very European in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Like a lot of the sci-fi films that emerged out of Europe in Star Wars' wake were a little bit more unabashedly kitschy. Yeah. And I think when they decided to make Flash Gordon, they were like, okay, listen, let's do all of the incredible production design and wild action sequences, but instead of taking it super seriously, because how seriously can you take this? It's Flash Gordon. There's this yeah. vibe. Like, it feels like it's made by adults who are just like, listen, I can, I, I, I can't take it as seriously as George Lucas does. I, I, I'm not ten years old somewhere <laughs> in my brain. I'm an adult. So I'm gonna, enjoying we're gonna this. Have, we're gonna have camp. Yeah. And we're gonna have sex. Yeah. And we're gonna have like a few uh, ribald jokes. There's a reason. I mean, listen. You once you realize it, this is written by one of 
of the big writers on Batman the live action series, it's got that same level of self-aware camp to it. However, it doesn't fail to deliver all the action and adventure and the sex and everything you could possibly want. The production design is absolutely marvelous. Oh, it captures that wonderful the, uh, freewheeling sense of the old serials where it just bounds from one ridiculous adventure to the next. The, the plot, by the way, Flash Gordon is a football player. He's shot into outer space on a rocket with a reporter and a mad scientist. They end up on an alien planet rung by Ming the Merciless, played by Max von Sydow, in uh, racist makeup. I can't apologize for that enough, but... Regardless, it's 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 mm. utterly absurd, mm. and you got Brian Blessed as King of the Hawkmen for fuck's sake! How mad can you be? <laughs> Gordon's alive. Gordon's alive. It's so great. It's I'm not afraid to be weird, mm. but it's also not afraid to deliver the goods, and yeah. that's the thing that I think keeps people coming back to this movie. It will. It's. People want to take a lot of their sci-fi seriously. I get that. I think it's one of the reasons why Star Wars has this incredibly devoted following because it encourages you to get emotionally wrapped up in it. But Flash Gordon is not that. Mm. Flash Gordon is pure entertainment. Yeah. And it's wonderful. And you're right. It has one of the great soundtracks. Just one of the greatest soundtracks ever. Mm. Period. Uh, The actor plays Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sam Jones. Almost said Mike Hodges. That's the director. Yeah. Um, Sam Jones, uh, he has, like, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Flash is a dummy. Yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's a nice guy, but he's, he's not he's, smart. He's a kind guy, there, but there's a bit where, uh, he's a football star, that's what he knows. Yeah. And there's a bit where he has to pick up, like, an alien object. Like, just a widget, yeah. And he's been knocked on the head, and he's dizzy, and he can't concentrate, and it's not until Dale, his girlfriend, so, like, starts behaving like a cheerleader in this like yeah. alien courtroom encouraging him to play keep like, away go, from all the aliens yeah, go, yeah. go flash go and he like uh, is like a little bit dazed and he picks it up and just starts charging with so like, like puts it on his arm like it's a football <laughs> and starts charging through the crowd it's oh like my God. Th- there's like just the right level of idiocy in there mm. and of course max von cito not phoning it in like he's, no, he's really giving a real performance chewing, like i'm bored today i'm going to destroy the clytus i'm bored clytus clytus is android yeah clytus is an awesome android uh timothy dalton is in yeah, it. yeah he's uh, great richard o'brien is in it mm. like everyone's in this fucking thing if no. you've never actually sat down and watched it please it's so much fucking fun, it's really fun. enter it with the correct spirit don't think of it as star wars but silly think of it as flash gordon yeah, <laughs> just let it be. Think let it, it be what it is, and enjoy that shit. Th- it's so th- much fun. Think of Star Wars as Flash Gordon, but humorless. <laughs> kind of, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Fl- Flash Gordon, but not as silly. We did, we did a whole podcast about the original serial, and once you watch the original serial, you realize, oh my god, George Lucas stole every single fucking thing, didn't yeah, he? Like shots, even like, like shots, whole yeah. action sequences. Phantom Menace is really ripped off from it. Like, wow. Well, and, you know that that was his state. He didn't. Oh, yeah. He wasn't he, trying to hide that. No, in fact, that's yeah. one of the things that makes Star Wars such a great thing is that it's a pastiche of all the cinema that came before it. I'm not mm. complaining. I'm just calling it out. Yeah. And I think George Lucas would too. So mm. there you go. All right, let's move on. What do you got next? Uh, I'm, I'm going to do something completely different from mm. Flash Gordon uh, okay. because I, I have a couple documentaries on my list. Okay, and uh, just like on, on all like all of my runners up and everything, and yeah. uh, I want to talk about the five obstructions. I wanted to watch this in time for this because I've heard so many good things yeah. and I never got around to it, but I didn't get yeah. time. Tell me about the five obstructions. Uh, the five obstructions is a documentary uh, put together by Lars von Trier, and he is very fond of a filmmaker <laughs> named uh, Jargon Leth. 
Uh, Jorgen Leth is not very well known. Uh, his he uh, won a bunch of awards for a short film he made many many years ago. Hmm. Um, uh, what was it called? Um, I don't know. Oh, it's um, the, it's the like the perfect man, the perfect human. The perfect human. Okay. And it, it was like an experimental short. It's like, what, what does this man do? What do, what does it mean to dance? And there's like just shots of people like mm. like uh, snapping their fingers and just sort of moving around. Right. And and that was his film, the, the Perfect Human. Uh, Lars von Trier says he's claims to have watched that film hundreds of times. Just, I love the, okay. the Perfect Human. And so uh, for the five obstructions, he says. Uh, he brought brought in Jürgen Leth, mm-hmm. sort of like as a, a mentor that he was trying to essentially school, because because Lars von Trier is an arrogant jerk and right. uh, descriptively, and he says Jürgen, I want you to remake the Perfect Human, but I'm going to come up with five obstructions. I'm going to have a list of them, mm-hmm. and you have to make it with these creative barriers. Yeah, so uh, you have to shoot it in Cuba. Okay. Remake it, but you have to shoot it in Cuba with local talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a like you ask a bunch of questions on on the voiceover. Now you have to answer those questions. Mm. Uh, every shot has to be twelve frames, like weird <laughs> weird stuff like that, which is half, half a second of frame. That's that's sounds mm. nauseating. And honestly. and yeah. and Yargan Leth, it's like yeah. well, okay, well I'm here. Yeah, I agree. I'll, yeah. I'll I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll, I'll mm. make. I'll make your. I'll. I'll see your. I'll see your challenges, Lars von Trier. Yeah. And he does it. He's yeah. like, and it's like a little bit about sort of the process of how he's putting these things together. And we see the completed version. It's in Cuba. He answers the questions. The, it. What he does is he actually uh, has every shot kind of play back and forth a few times. So he's found like a creative solution to this 12 frames thing. It's not just like a scatter shot of images. It's like yeah. things are kind of pulsating back and forth. And Lars von Trier looks at that and says, well, God damn it. Okay, five more. <laughs> <laughs> and they challenge each other. It's like, let's come up with these, these five obstructions. Yeah. Uh, some of them are like a little bit, are meant to be a little bit like provocative. One of them is uh, part of the perfect human is you're eating a nice meal. Okay, well, you have to dress up. You have to eat a nice meal. But you have to go to the poorest neighborhood in the world in India and film it outdoors amongst the impoverished people. No, that's that's like a Lars von Trier thing. That's a very yeah. confrontational kind of being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lars von Trier has to make something in animation, or he has to make it in animation. Lars right. You have to animate it. It's like, well, I hate animation. What am I going to do? But he gets the team that did Waking Life to oh, rotoscope it, okay. so it actually has this kind of vibrancy to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time he comes back, Lars von Trier is like, fuck, I... I, I, I trying I, to break him! He, and he says out loud multiple times, I'm trying to make you bad. I'm trying to see if there is a way that a creative person can be uh, challenged by circumstances. And yeah. Jorgen Leth is... Rising to the challenge. Like, he like he doesn't get smug about it, but he understands that Lars von, that Lars von Trier is actually mm. playing a very adolescent game with him. Yeah. And at the very end, Lars von Trier has to make the perfect human in his own way, and it's essentially him admitting, I'm not good as I thought I was because I wouldn't be able to do what you did. I, I can't yeah. think the way you do. This is a really interesting filmmaking exercise. Yeah. It's a really interesting analysis of how, of how creativity works. Yeah. There's that ancient saying, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, yeah. uh, I mean, more and more, that's proving to be true. I feel like limitations are something that really enhances a film rather than uh, being a detriment. You see these gigantic movies that have, you know, 
untold budgets and uncontrolled special effects, and sometimes they're not really interesting to watch. You watch something that has, like, a tenth of the budget from 20 years prior, and somehow that's, like, way more visually interesting, and it's because they were, they had to think about how to frame up a shot. They had to think more creatively. And this is, of uh, The Five Obstructions, that in action. Uh, I would love to see a, like, if you've ever watched Chopped on yeah, the yeah, Food yeah. Network, where you, you pull out just, like, five... You want to see a four, TV version. Four ingredients out of a basket, and you have to make a meal out yeah. of whatever it is, like head cheese and kumquats mm-hmm. and radiators and yeah. your human hand. You have to put it all into a meal. I would love to see a Five Obstructions game show like that. I think I think it, I was just thinking about this and how how just build something, but I was thinking of how great it would be. And I think the trick is you would want to make it something that the audience is a bit familiar with. Mm. So here's what I here's here's my pitch in my head. Get a great director. You probably never get him, but let's just throw it out there. Let's say mm. Steven Spielberg. Okay. <laughs> take a, take an iconic scene from one of his movies. Let's say the the opening of Indiana Jones. And the Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. where uh, Indiana Jones goes through the cave, picks up the thing, and then runs from a boulder. Just mm. that bit in the cave, from the beginning of the cave to the him getting out of the cave. Give him the obstructions. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so here's the deal. You need to not use any of the same shots you used before. Mm. It has to be new angles yeah. for everyone. Uh, every single character has to be done in claymation. Uh, there you You know, yeah, like that's... just stuff like that. You, the, the soundtrack in... has to be... Entirely uh, from uh, 1990s romantic comedy soundtracks, like just <laughs> yeah. something like that. Just to, just as a challenge, just mm. for fun. Or, or you, you can know? even make it like a technical thing. It's like here, yeah. here's a camera you have to crank by, like the cameras they used in the movie yeah. Nope, like the ones you crank by hand. You have to use that. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Like, uh, so yeah, I, I feel like that would uh, be a wonder, wonderful, interesting challenge. Yeah. I feel like a lot of filmmakers would love that. Sure. Um, I would love to. And of course, your mind immediately goes yeah. like, "What's what celebrity director would you get on, and what obstructions would you give them?" Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, hey, uh, hey, De Palma, we're gonna get you on here, yeah. but no one can die. It has to be rated G. And yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? Let's do it. That'd be great. Yeah, I love it. That'd be so, awesome. So uh, the five obstructions is just gets your mind going about the way creativity mm. works and about the way filmmaking works and. Uh, most importantly, you get to see Lars von Trier get schooled. Yeah. Like you, you think he's trying to do something really kind of clever here, and he just fails and fails and fails. I love it. Uh, I have one documentary on mine, uh, okay. and um, I know what it is too. Yeah, of course, you fucking do. <laughs> but I love this movie, and I love the director, and uh, it, it's hard not to pick Orson Welles's F for Fake. Yeah, I, I, fig- I figured this would be your number one, but all right, uh, it's not. I, I there's so many good fucking movies. Like seriously, like I was really torn between like six movies for my number one I'm still not 100% sure I'm committed to my number one I might switch it out at the last minute but this is definitely in the running alright uh, you gave me too good a segue though I couldn't pass All it right. up uh, F for Fake is a documentary directed by Orson Welles hosted by Orson Welles uh, before they completed after his death the film The Other Side of the Wind it was the last film he actually completed before his death his last few decades was mostly spent half-making projects or starting projects or trying to get things off the ground and never filming most of it. Uh, But this one he finished, and this is... If it wasn't for Citizen Kane, this would be as good as anything he ever did. Hmm. F for Fake is a documentary about fraud. F for Fake is about people who commit fraud. Specifically... It's it's about uh, a a painter. Yeah, specifically it's about a very famous painter... Who he paints replicas? He paints replicas. He he will 
you can see him. Like he'll just as you're watching him on camera in one shot, he paints a Picasso. You'd never know it wasn't a Picasso, and he brags about it. It's like there are museums all over the world that have not only shown my paintings, but had them professionally vetted by historians and critics. Mm. He's incredibly proud, and he's a local celebrity on the island of Ibiza. He is smug, but undeniably charming, Mm. and you can't help but be fascinated by him. And over the course of the film, he is being documented not just by Wells, and a lot of this footage came from another uh, project, but... Uh, he's also being documented by a guy who's writing a book about him. Mm. This guy wound up... Uh, also a hoaxer, yeah. Also wound up... This is actually the subject of a Richard Gere movie called The Hoax. Mm. He wound up writing a fake autobiography of Howard Hughes. And he had the audacity to do this while Hughes was alive. He didn't wait till he died. The idea was he, uh, a lot of people were trying to get the scoop on Hughes, but he yeah. had become a recluse at that point. Yes, he wasn't he talking in public. So he says, well, there's no harmony. He's not going to come out and yeah. defend himself. He'll, he'll never say anything. So yeah. I'm going to write this tell-all book about the about the life of Howard Hughes as if I, I had the scoop. Only I knew how to contact Howard Hughes. And I've got some clout. I wrote this book about this art forger. I probably learned some stuff about how to perform the hoax by following the art forger. So he wrote a fucking book and it was a whole fucking thing and then Howard Hughes actually came out of he didn't come out in public but he like gave like, like he called in to a press conference uh-huh. to basically reveal that this is all fucking uh-huh. champ this is all public record I'm not ruining anything by telling you all this um, Orson Welles is fascinated by all this but he's not just fascinated by the people he is He's fascinated by what this says about people who want to be fooled and people who want to fool other people. And he very brilliantly and very confessionally makes it about himself because his career is based on a lie as well. And a lot of people will immediately assume, okay, we're talking about the War of the Worlds, right? This radio telecast where he made a fake news show Mm. and enough people tuned in after the introduction that said it was fiction, and were convinced by the format that some people thought it might be real, and they were freaked out. And that kind of helped make his name, even though he was already a big Broadway star. He mentions that, but he also mentions that when he was, like, young and just, like, touring around, like, like tooling around in Europe and needed a job, he would pretend he was a famous actor from America to get in acting troops when he had no experience. <laughs> he started his career on a lie. Hmm. And he ends up telling this incredible story about this other like forger that he met, and it's like it's unbelievable, just what an incredible storyteller he is, but also how just honest he is about how art is essentially lies, mm. and it's lies that we allow ourselves to be told. But what is the difference really? And it is thoughtful. It's energetic. It's so vibrant. Like, it's got this crackling energy that a lot of films today don't even have. Yeah. Like, we think now, like, oh, movies move so much faster. Most movies do not move as fast as F for fake. (laughs) It's got this incredible, like, boyish energy. Like, this, like, adolescent, but with the wisdom of an adult behind it. Just this running around, can't wait to tell you more stuff. Gotta jump ahead in the storyline. Oh, wait, we gotta come back. Brilliantly edited. Mm. Super fucking funny. Very thoughtful. Couple of mind blowers in there. 
It's great. I love FFX. I agree. It's on my list as well. Hey! Yeah. Uh, Fake put something in my mind that I mm. haven't really been able to let go of. What's that? And uh, the painting forger oh, yeah, yeah. says, uh, my, my paintings have been checked by uh, you know, mm. authenticators. You know, they've been yeah. authenticated. They hang experts. in yeah, ex- Experts have looked at them. Uh, they get the paintings next to each other. Even he can't tell the difference. It... Uh, it it start it opens up this whole question as to the value of authenticity. Yeah, uh, which is something we tend to value in yeah. in the uh, in this world. Um, look at something like uh, J T. Leroy, mm-hmm. the J T. Leroy scandal. J mm. T. Leroy wrote uh, was a, a young man, a young author who wrote this piece about how uh, he was just hideously abused as as a young child and. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of drugs. Yeah, did, did a lot of whole, drugs, and yeah. but had was like coming out on the other side, and was writing very passionately about his experiences, and you know, uh, became kind of a, a celebrity gadfly, just mm-hmm. because people wanted to take him under take him under their wings and sort of make sure he was healthy. And he made a couple of public appearances, but always had like these big shades on and hid from uh, public, like hid his face from view. And uh, Eventually, it came out that J.T. Leroy was not a real person. Mm -hmm. That person you saw in public appearances was a hired actress, Mm -hmm. uh, and all of the all of the writings were done were made up. They were fictions. When we thought it was real, we valued it. When we learned it was fiction, we did not. Yeah, we dropped it like a stone. Everyone was like, "How dare you make us read this book?" Is is the story less compelling? Mm No, <laughs> as yeah. a story, uh, it's it's the same words. Yeah, but it's this weird idea that what we're reading is true. Yeah, that it's the, changes it's, the nature of that story. It's, it's the macro story. Yeah. It's a story on top of the actual mm. story itself. That this added thing that gives. Yeah. There's a conversation we're having. It's not important, but like. They just recently announced that there's going to be another Deadpool movie, and it's going to have the return of Hugh Jackman as, as Wolverine. And I'm making a point. Right. But there was like the the last like Hugh Jackman Wolverine movie was Logan. It was he was an old man and actually put a cap on his story. And it's a, it's a really well made film. Hmm. It had a lot of had a lot of oomph to it. Well, one of the better superhero movies. It's really really good. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people say like, "Hey, this new film doesn't cheapen Logan." I'm going to say this right now. A little. It does. And, and the reason why isn't because Logan will not be good anymore. It will still be good. Mm. Maybe the new film will recontextualize it. We can't. I can't speak to that, and sometimes that can be frustrating, but ignore that. On the macro level, on top of everything, that was his last film. Mm. And that gave that movie this imprimatur. Yeah. It actually has like a historical significance. This is his last word. It's not anymore. So if that even if it's only by like 0.05% cheapened, it's not as valuable as if it was his actual last thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we we don't have a painting of the second to last supper. <laughs> we just have the last one. That's the one they <laughs> made. But they had a conjurer and a mariachi band. That's that's a Monty Python yeah. sketch. I realize I referenced that without thinking, but it's yeah. true. But like, regardless, yeah, the, these stories on top of the stories, the story that like here's how the story got made. Oh, isn't yeah. that so much more so, interesting? Ch- changes the way we value the art. Yeah, and so maybe it shouldn't. So, well, and that's that's the point that Effer Fake brings up. Yeah. Do we value the art for its skill and the way the object moves us, mm-hmm. or is the story about its making mm-hmm. more interesting? Yeah, 
These things don't exist. No. They do exist in a vacuum. A lot of art exists in a vacuum because a lot of art that we experience, we don't know who made it. Mm-hmm. We don't bother to look it up. We don't know the story behind it. Mm-hmm. Half the song, put it on the radio, pick a song. Any song that happens to be on the radio, just pick a random station. You probably don't know where that song came from. Yeah. You don't know why it was written. You might, if it's a really popular song, but you probably don't. That song kind of exists in a vacuum for you right now. Mm-hmm. But once you know, you know. Yeah. And it changes it. It has to. And that's what yeah, it's what Effort Fake is about. It's fascinating. Yeah. I love uh, that and, movie to pieces. And, and we're critics, so we're trying to contextualize art all the time. Yeah, it like, really hits kind us of hard. Connect. It's like, wait a minute, how much does context matter if yeah. the context can be changed and we can be mm. so easily hoodwinked? Yeah. Uh, um but well, yeah, that was, that was on my list as well, so I guess you get to move on to another all right. one. Uh, I'm going to pick... I have another comedy on my list, and this is one of my very favorite comedies. This is a movie... I used to watch my family all the time, but that is not in and of itself a reason to be on this list. It's just I have an emotional connection to this one. Mm-hmm. It holds up. It's really fucking funny. Uh, this is Andrew Bergman's The Freshman from 1990. Oh, I, I saw this, like, when it was first on home video. And oh, you haven't seen it since? Oh, it's so no, fucking I, and, 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 and I didn't care for it at the time. Oh, really? Oh, well, I, was, I was, like, 13 years old. I'd recommend checking like, it out. It's really, really funny. So, uh, Matthew Broderick, young Matthew Broderick, like, a couple of years after Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's a film student in New York for the very first time. And he ends up getting swindled uh, right off the, the subway by Bruno Kirby. He has all of his belongings stolen. And he's able to track him down. And in, Bruno Kirby says, I already sold all your stuff. There's nothing I can do. But I can get you a job. Mm. I know a guy who needs a job done. It's a little under the table. But I think he'd be great at it. And he takes him to see Marlon Brando playing... The guy the Godfather was based on. <laughs> That's the conceit of the movie. He's doing the Godfather. Mm, he's, he's, playing, the, he's playing the same role. He's playing the yeah. same role, but he's playing it in a slightly more funny way without all of the extra like Shakespearean baggage. And he, Penelope Ann Miller is his daughter. She takes an immediate liking to Matthew Broderick. She's charming as hell. Uh, and it turns out he takes Matthew Broderick under his wing. And it's fucking hilarious he's studying the godfather in school <laughs> he ends up like working for the godfather and his job that he picks up is we need you to take care of this item and bring it from here to here sounds simple except it's a komodo dragon but you're like gonna spend a, half a the gigan- movie gigantic endangered lizard yeah it's yeah. played by a monitor lizard most people can't tell the difference but yeah you're basically pl- you're basically taking a, a fucking dinosaur Mm. You're gonna put it in the back seat of your car. And you're just gonna put a seatbelt on it and try to get it from place to place. Why? Great reveal. I'm not gonna ruin it for you. Very, very funny. Uh, so much weird Komodo dragon stuff. Just it gets lost mm. at a mall. Isn't that hilarious? Like it's fun and goofy. But the damnedest thing is, this movie is actually really fucking sweet and tender. There's this really wonderful bit where, like, he bonds with Marlon Brando over, like, the fact that his father was a failed poet and he reads his father's poetry to Marlon Brando. It's genuinely really, really sweet. There's all these, like, really wacky... Like, the movie has a very low opinion of film school teachers. (laughs) And it's really genuinely hilarious. And if you've been to film school, you there's always that one... (laughs) That one guy who is exactly the film school teacher in this particular film. Um... Very, very funny. The romance between Matthew Broderick and uh, uh, Penelope Ann Miller is pretty mild. Like, it's not really a romance movie, but they have good chemistry and it's sweet together. It's an unusual film. It doesn't fit a particular genre. Like, it's a comedy, but 
what kind of comedy? Is it a crime comedy? Not really. Is it a college comedy? Not really. Is it a medic comedy? Not a lot. Like, it's this weird, distinctive beast. Hmm. And it is absolutely charming and lovable. Marlon Brando's really, really sweet in it. There's this one bit where you just get to watch Marlon Brando ice skate for a while. And uh. I mean, you don't even know why we're watching it. It's just somehow very, very <laughs> endearing. As, as as a youth, well, first of all, I hadn't seen The Godfather, so I didn't oh, know that must like, have been how, weird. how accurate he was doing his, his impersonation. That must have been yeah, weird, yeah. I was like 13, I wasn't watching The Godfather yet. Yeah, but the, the movie uh, kind and, of uh, assumes you had, so yeah. it probably changed the experience. Uh, also, I just hated Matthew Broderick at the time. Oh, really? Just, he, he was just, like the most annoying actor. I did mm. not want to look at. Apart from, like, I liked Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I had watched that one. Mm. It's like, oh, he's sort of like this charming, uh, you know, dazzling teenage character. Mm. And after that, he played like a lot of nervous characters and sad sack kind of characters, and just didn't do it for me. I appreciate so, that. So, so I couldn't watch the, the the freshman with fresh eyes. But again, I, I was a very young. Person. I hope you see it some of, again sometime because I really really love it. There's a line from this movie. It's not mind blowing, but I think about it a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a certain freedom to being completely screwed <laughs> because at the very least, you know it can't get any worse. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll segue into a, a comedy film. Good segue. Uh, uh, <laughs> is the freshman sort of a comedy film? No, it is a comedy. It's yeah. it's it's like I said. It's kind of like a weird sort of jumble of of genres, but it's mostly a comedy. Yeah. Uh, and this wouldn't be uh, one of these iron lists unless we bring up uh, 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 Warner Brothers animated short film. Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not complaining. We, we I'm not this, complaining. We, but we, it's like it's it stopped uh, being it stopped being clever and cool a while ago, and now it's no, just no, no, it's everyone's just, expecting. Well, no, now it's standard. And I, okay. I, I got to talk about Feed the Kitty because Feed the Kitty is wonderful. All right, that's uh, a good one. Yeah, that's uh, Feed the Kitty's kid. Uh, this is Chuck Jones short from 1953, I believe. Um, 52. <laughs> okay, uh, you're so close. 1952. Uh, it's not, the Schmodown doesn't exist anymore. We don't need to know release dates. Oh, thank goodness! I don't have to remember anything. <laughs> Just let my brain go. Uh, uh, no, Feed the Kitty, uh, 1952 short, uh, not starring any of the, the star Warner Brothers stock characters. Mm. It stars Mark Anthony, the bulldog, yeah. and Pussyfoot, little black and white kitty. They're so cute. Mark Anthony is a really, like, a really macho bulldog. He's, like, mm. all upper body, like, all shoulders. Yeah, yeah. And he's really angry, like, Argh. And uh, and Pussyfoot is a little kitten with, like, the widest kitten eyes. And, yeah. she, and Pussyfoot just goes, like that's all. That's all they got. So cute. And, uh, and Mark Anthony doesn't talk at all. Mark, Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony's a dog. So Mark Anthony yeah. barks at, uh, at at Pussyfoot, and of course the little kitten is unfazed. The little kitten is uh, completely snuggly and cute, and yeah. snuggles up on Mark Anthony, and his heart melts. Yep. So he takes the little kitten in, and now he would and, die for that kitten. And, and yeah, now is is the kitten's father, and will mm. do anything for the kitten. And has to hide the kitten from his owner. And uh, in order to do so, of course, strange shenanigans ensue. And the owner is, yeah. you know, a, a human that we only see the bottom, her bottom yeah. half. I like to think it's a nanny when she was younger from Muppet Babies. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I, I, uh, they played uh, with that in the cartoon Cow and Chicken. Did mm. you watch Cow and Chicken? No. Uh, I, I know of it, but I yeah. never watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Give, Mama had a chicken. Mama had a cow. Uh we only saw the parents from the legs down and occasionally mm. they would pan up and we'd see that they were only legs. Like they didn't have top halves. <laughs> I'm so glad someone actually did that joke. I always thought yeah. that would be funny to do on Muppet Babies. Like this horrifying. Yeah, like, ah! 
Like, for a while it was a joke, like, we never saw their hands, so they would do things like turn on the TV with their toes, or flick light switches, or, like, pick up something. <laughs> it was always with their feet, and eventually we learned they were just legs. That's, so the, That's funny. The, the owner of Mark Anthony is just legs. Uh, we, we see her, like, we just don't see her face. Listen, it's like, you know, like, in Steven Spielberg's E.T., how almost every shot in that movie is told from, like, a child's eyeline? Yeah. Like, so that you in the, the audience... Down a little bit. Yeah, so, like, it's like looking up at your mom, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it puts you in this, like childlike mentality it reminds you what it was like to view the world from when you were you know Mm. young really little um he just stole that from this he's (laughs) shamelessly stole it from feed the kitty chuck joe well uh this was the the year before uh Mm. ozu's tokyo story so exactly uh, chuck jones ozu would not exist without chuck jones all of these things are Mm. true we stand by them. That's right, because we're you, professional critics. You can we don't quote us around. in all of your books. Uh, <laughs> quote us in books. <laughs> Please. You can quote, quote me that. <laughs> quote, quote us in books, says Whitney. Uh, <laughs> we'll give you a quote for your book. Quote us in books. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, the cartoon climaxes when... Uh, Mark Anthony has to hide the cat in the kitchen. Yeah, uh, he hides it. He hides it in the in the flour. And the, yeah, in, the, in a bag of flour. And uh, wouldn't you know it? That's right when Mark Anthony's owner decides to make some cookies. Yeah. And of course, the kitty slips out without Mark Anthony seeing. Yeah. But Mark but, Anthony thinks that the kitty is being baked into cookies, and mm-hmm. Mark Anthony is trying to stop her. But she kicks Mark Anthony out of the house, and all he can do is watch helplessly mm-hmm. as he thinks this like uh, yeah the, the look of kitten like, is the animation of like alive. horror on Mark Anthony's face as he watches like the dough being. Yeah. Mixed and, and, and the kicker, the punchline is the cookie. <laughs> she, she's like, when all is said and done, she's like, "Okay, Mark Anthony, you're. I still love you. You're a good boy. Here, have a cookie." And the cookie is in the shape of a cat. Yeah, <laughs> and he looks at the cookie. Like, and he's he like, puts it on his head where the, the cat used to sit. It's like he starts crying. <laughs> it's so beautifully tragic. Yeah, it's, it's it's you get to watch. The horror that befalls Mark Anthony, but you know everything's fine. Yeah. And you know he's going to get that moment of relief. You know that's coming. Mm. So it's amusing a little bit to like, it's it's like um, that kind of like socially acceptable sadism of like pretending you forgot someone's birthday because you have a big <laughs> surprise party. like, yeah, yeah. And you know, like, they think I forgot their birthday. <laughs> They're really, really angry right yeah. now. They but feel they really lonely and alienated. Yeah. <laughs> Why did we ever say that was fine? <laughs> it's kind of you, fucked up if you think yeah, about it. I, I, human beings, I guess, have a bit of a cruel streak. It's just yeah. part of us. Yeah. Uh, fight, fight it, but you know, play. I suppose. Anyway, this is a, this is this is a mean, but not like it's a mean joke. But it's all it's all gonna be fine. We it, know it's, it's all gonna yeah, be fine. It's, it's it's, mean, he suffers, but it's okay. It, we know he's gonna be okay because we have information. He doesn't. Yeah. Uh, it's the opposite of suspense. There you go. Yeah. Uh, there's we know how to, it's going to turn out. There's ways to play like like a cruel joke where you th- you think somebody's going to is dead but they actually aren't. Yeah. Uh like Tom Sawyer. I've yeah. seen the flip side of that where uh you thought someone was alive and they aren't? Oh, well like uh there's a, a we we talked about this film a couple times called The Man Who Knew Too Little. Oh yeah. Where uh Bill Murray plays a fellow who uh, he mm. thinks he's part of this like live theatrical experience where he's being brought from building to building on like a, a scripted spy adventure. Yeah, he's being treated. Mm. The idea is he was signed up for uh, this like fake theater experience where all of these actors are going to pretend you're a spy. Yeah, and you get to pretend to be a cool spy. And, and, and they kind of they show. kind of like feed you lines, so yeah. you're like part of this interactive thing. And yeah. 
But uh, the joke course, is... The, the joke is uh, he gets embroiled in a real spy adventure, so he yeah. thinks it's all fake. Yeah. And so he go, he finds a dead person. He's like, wow, that guy's a really good actor. Catch! And he's like throwing <laughs> things at the corpse. And all of these actual spies are just sort of like shocked he's by like, how callous he is. He's so twisted. You're th- yeah. playing catch with this corpse. That, that movie has one joke. Mm-hmm. And it is consistently it's, funny. Uh, it works throughout. It's it, actually a pretty good movie. I, people uh, do not talk about it. It's one of the forgotten movies of that like comedy generation. That movie actually funny. It was you know? a sort of a, a down period for Bill Murray's. Career. Oh yeah, he was doing like Larger Than Life, which is also kind of funny actually. But, I never uh, saw that one. It's fine. It was actually one of the weird. It was like one of those like breakout movies from Matthew McConaughey. Oh yeah, yeah. he's he's in that movie. He plays like a guy who like gives Bill Murray a ride like he's a trucker and he picks Bill, Bill Murray up and he stole his scene so much and this is back when Matthew McConaughey was nobody he was before Time to Kill mm. he was a minor character actor you might have remembered him from Dazed and Confused um, he stole the scene so much that when they screened it for test audiences everyone wanted more of him so they reshot the ending for him to come back <laughs> that's great and they made it like all about yeah. him like all they added all of these scenes of him like following Bill Murray around the country where it was just Matthew McConaughey in a truck <laughs> it works actually so what? anyway it worked uh, out fine anyway Feed the Kitty is sweet uh, it's good uh great character work from Chuck yeah. Jones just uh, the the oh, expressions yeah. and and the way the story is told through emotions and no dialogue yeah uh, he was very expert in that uh Chuck Jones of the animators from the termite Terrace mm-hmm. uh Chuck Jones did eyes best yeah the way he sort His of eye acting is perfect yeah the eye acting is really good he was had really expressive eyes uh, and I think every one of the animators had like a slightly different. Uh, a slightly different style and the like the visual acting was a little bit different i feel like uh you can tell what a chuck jones short looks like Uh, you can really tell what a robert mckimson cartoon looks like because the mouths are really expressive like he puts a lot of like lip work into his kind of weird his characters uh and bob clampett if they look really like wrinkly and terrible (laughs) if you pause the animation at any one moment and you don't recognize the character Mm -hmm. it's bob it's bob clampett Yeah. yeah Bob Clamp is a genius, by the way. That oh, wasn't yes. a criticism. No, no, just, no, no. Uh, that's just, just descriptive. Yeah. <laughs> he's a very, he's a very <laughs> unusual animator for the era, yeah. but he's great. Um, I have an animated movie on my list, so I guess I okay. might as well do that. And this is a movie I know I like more than you do. Okay, but I don't think you dislike it. And I <laughs> swear to God, I think this is one of the best written movies that Pixar has ever done. And I'm talking okay. about Finding Nemo. All right. Yeah. I'm- yeah. I, I, I don't think you have any objection. I just don't think it's No, I have fans. no objection. Yeah. I, I think Finding Nemo is just fine. I like Finding yeah. Dory as well. Um, I, I didn't fall in love with this one the way mm-hmm. most of the world seemed to. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's not that I run hot and cold on Pixar. Actually, I've, recently, I think they've done a couple of kind of bad movies. But yeah, uh, yeah the, this one really took the world by storm and... I like it fine. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just not hugely impressed, I guess. But yeah. uh, I think I, was... I'm not going to begrudge you yeah. people liking no. Finding Nemo. Uh, for me, Finding uh, Finding Nemo is one of Pixar's most emotional movies. Maybe yeah. not now. I okay. think uh, I think uh, Coco and uh, Coco Inside Out uh, are, are have a, a reasonable yeah. like claim to that title. But for a while, I thought it was Finding Nemo. Mm. Finding Nemo. It's it's a story of. Uh, a fish, and he's married, and they're gonna have a whole bunch of kids, and then, and it's a really scary scene if you're a little kid. Uh, it's, it's off camera, but it's still scary. The mom and all but one of the eggs are eaten by, I think it's a barracuda. Okay. And so it's just a fish and his one son. Hmm. And he becomes extremely overprotective. Yeah. 
And mm-hmm. when he becomes so overprotective that the, ch- that the child starts rebelling mm-hmm. and doing something, you know, risky in order to push boundaries, which is what kids do. Uh, it, it's the wrong moment for it. And the, the little uh, Nemo, the little, little fish, uh, ends up being picked up by a scuba diver who puts it in his aquarium in a dentist's office. Yes. And the father, Marlon, voiced by Albert Brooks, uh, is going to travel across the ocean to find his son. And here's the thing. We know he's in a dentist's office. <laughs> How the fuck yeah, yeah, is was... he... It, it's one of the most... In, it's completely motivated. This person is going 100% motivated to do the impossible thing. But it could not seem more impossible. That is just a beautiful setup to start with. Yeah. yeah. It just could not seem like the stakes are higher or but more impossible. It has that wonderful Pixar detail, though, where it takes a facet of the real world and adds mm-hmm. an interesting story to it. Yeah. So that's just an aquarium in a dentist office. That's something we recognize. Mm-hmm. But how do they get out of there? That's like a prison for them. Yeah. What if they have a parent out there in the ocean looking for the... Like, yeah. And, what if, the and imagi- what if the other fish it, it in there... It the imagination. And yeah. what if the other fish in that aquarium see it as a prison and they're planning a prison break? How would they even conceive of such a I, thing? I love the prison break stuff so in, in Finding Nemo. Uh, the ocean stuff is less interesting to me. Yeah, I, can, I, I guess I can... I think they're both great. Yeah. I think... Um, you know, Marlon teams up with Dory, who's a blue tang, blue I think tang, is what they're yeah. called, uh, voiced by Ellen DeGeneres, and, um, you know, he learns a valuable lesson about letting go and being willing to take risks and understanding that, mm. you know, to be a good uh, parent doesn't mean being overprotective. Yeah. And, um, and she learns, she actually doesn't learn anything in that movie, really. It's the second movie that's all about Dory, and Finding Dory is good. I like Finding Dory. It's a, it's a sweet mm. film. It's got a good message. Um... But, um, yeah, here they have this wonderful sense of scale. There's this beautiful... And because it's it's all fish, it's all this kind of... A lot of the earlier Pixar movies, like when they were like animating humans, you look at them now and it's a little like, okay, you, you, you figured out how to do that later. Yeah. Like, it's like, perfectly fine, the, the, but you, you got better at yeah, that. Look, look at the dog in Toy Story. It looks, yeah. like, really static. But because they're in the ocean for most of it, and because they're just doing animating things like plants and, you know, uh, jellyfish and stuff like that, um, it, it ages really well, actually. It feels a little, you know, more stylized, perhaps, than some of the later uh, mm-hmm. uh, Pixar stuff, but it's very colorful. Again, wonderful sense of scale. The scene where they're swallowed by the whale, the uh, je- the jellyfish, uh, like, jungle that they have to, to go through. Um, the surfer dude sea turtles yeah. are a highlight. Yeah, it's a wonderful... every, And it's one of those, like, road trip movies where everything's episodic, but every stop on the way... Pushes the characters, introduces more of the world. It's funny. It's often very emotional, and it. The, but the movie always has this consistent focus. It is about a father trying to do something impossible, and we're with him all the way, mm-hmm. and we want him to succeed in his goals. And they come up with a, a, fantastic things to get in his way. That honestly, I have no idea how you fucking do it. Like, oh, how do we even fucking do this? <laughs> like, it's it's. That's all you need to tell a good story, really, is just an insurmountable goal and the will to surmount it. Mm-hmm. And you got to find a way to get you there that doesn't feel like a cheat. And they come up with so many great ways to make this happen so that at the end, when there is a happy ending, it's a Pixar movie, surprise, um, it doesn't feel easy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a cop-out. It actually feels like it was really, really difficult and required everyone to grow. Yeah. And that's 
great storytelling, and it's really pretty, and it's really funny, and the score is great. It's, it's, I, I really do think it's like one of those movies where I don't really see a flaw in it. I understand liking parts of it more than another, but mm. I really don't see a thing in this movie that doesn't work for me. Okay. And I just, I have to give it up for that. Like, that's just a great piece of cinema. Okay. So uh, I love Finding Nemo. It's maybe my favorite Pixar movie, but it's certainly up there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, I think Inside Out is still near the top for me. Uh, I have a lot of love for Inside Out. Yeah. I love the Monsters, Inc. and Monsters University movies. Yeah. Those are right up there. But if uh, I yeah. probably if I had to pick, I'd probably pick Finding Nemo. I think if, if you really sort of uh, put my feet to the fire, I might choose Finding Dory over it. Well, I can uh, see why. I, I think... Um, First of all, I, I when I went to the screening, I saw Finding Dory sitting next to Matt Acheday, and and this I'm going to tell a story on Matt Acheday. Yeah. Matt Acheday uh, is a film critic. He's uh, done stuff for like Breakfast All Day and What mm-hmm. the Flick, and he used to run Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he uh, oh gosh, he was he was waiting, he was waiting for the moment. He had this in his back pocket, no. and there's a scene in Finding Dory where Dory finally finds a bunch of other blue tang fish, uh-huh. and he leaned over. He said, "Look, it's a blue tang clan." <laughs> and, and, uh, and I, if, if I could have shot fire from my eyes, poor Matt Atchity would have been reduced to a pile of ash. And I know Matt Atchity well enough to know that he did not come up with that on the fly. He was waiting. He was waiting for that. He was like, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell Whitney. this moment. It's like, I have, I'm gonna this, tell I have this pun. I have was there it. anyone sitting on his other side? Did he give it to you and then give it to them too? I, I didn't just, I didn't see. Oh, I'm sure he did. It was like uh, you and like Alonzo Drawley on the other side. He's like, he's right there. Okay, it's Blue Tank. Blue Tank. Yeah. It's the Blue Tank. So thank you, Matt Atchity, for... For burning that into my brain, and I will forever associate that moment with Finding Dory. I love it. I uh, love it. What's your next uh, pick? Well, or let's uh, uh, talk about Finding uh, Dory. Uh, oh. Just a moment on Finding oh, Dory. Uh, okay. Just because uh, Nemo uh, is is a disabled character. Uh, Nemo has, uh, has a, a, one a smaller fin. Smaller fin. Yeah. And um, Finding Dory actually is full of disabled characters. Yeah. Uh, they're fish. Yeah, but uh, there's a, a septopus, an octopus that's missing a leg. Mm-hmm. Dory a, has uh, uh, has like a short term cog- memory loss. Co- yeah, cognitive problems. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, I forget what there's the way, a, bu- there's a, a beluga whale. that yeah. like has ha- had lost its ability to sort of echolocate and right. like, couldn't that's see very well. Yeah, I remember now. Uh, yeah, there. So yeah. I, I find I feel like it's a a really good, uh, very empowering film. Uh, mm-hmm. For disabled characters, it is, and it's a pretty good yeah. film. Just like just in general, just the story is fine. Yeah. Dory missed lost yeah, the, her family. It, we'll it, find it, Dory's family. It makes sense to yeah. tell that story, but and within that, it's yeah, it's really nice representation, mm-hmm. very positive, and we just don't see that many characters mm-hmm. who are disabled in children's cinema, which yeah. is weird if you think about it. Uh, so yeah, it's really yeah, it's a it's a it's a responsible movie and a very good one. Yeah, there, yeah. There was a push in in the 1990s for a lot more inclusion and representation, mm. uh, to the point where it got really kind of bland, and people started saying, "Well, it's token characters." Yeah, they're doing like, they you're doing the exact same yeah. thing with every character. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, even at a least gar- it was there. Even mm. even a garbage film like Mac and Me mm. at least had a disabled protagonist. Yeah, and and that was just part of his life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of work needed to be done. Yeah. Uh, and it still does. Yes. Uh, What's your next pick? My next pick. What do I want to talk about next? I don't know, um, Whitney. Well, you talked about uh, a delightful, colorful children's movie, so I'm going to talk about a delightful, colorful children's movie called Female Trouble. <laughs> um, That's I, fun. 
See, it's not actually a movie made. No, for no, it's female- a John Waters film, and it's very naughty. <laughs> female trouble is is quite ribald. It's also one of the John Waters films I've never seen. Really? There's actually several John Waters movies I've never seen. I'll I'll, I'll say the big one. I've never seen Pink Flamingos. Uh, I don't really blame you on Pink Flamingos. I know. I honestly, it's not. It's not like a. It's not like a solo thing where I'm just like I don't know if I'll ever be in the mood to watch that. <laughs> I just I know it's gross. It's fine, but I also know it's John Waters, and I'm sure it'll be fine. No, like it's, it just never a, really come up. It, like it, it's it's crass and just, the great yeah. thing about Pink Flamingos yeah. and and also Female Trouble, which is also rated NC-17, mm-hmm. uh, is these were films made in the 70s. Pink Flamingos was made in 72. Female Trouble is made in 74. I think mm-hmm. Female Trouble is John Waters' best movie. Uh, okay. And to this day, they're still gross. <laughs> you've, pro- you've probably heard stories about how uh, films like A Clockwork Orange, which is rough, or, yeah, uh, or, rough, or yeah. Midnight Cowboy, these films were rated X when mm-hmm. they were first released. And then they. You watch ratings... Midnight Cowboy today and you have no idea why this was rated X. Yeah, it's like, okay. It's, an, it's a hard R, but like it's not an X. Yeah, uh, there, there's like se- there's some sex acts, but they're not explicitly no, they're on not. camera. It's, it's seriously nothing there's, you could get an R rating for today. There, there's a scene of queer sex in Midnight Cowboy that probably That's was a probably big, big bugaboo at yeah, the time because queer sex got w- harder ratings than straight mm-hmm. sex because the MPAA is <laughs> because, fucking hypocritical. Yeah, because group. good old good old homophobia, and no yeah. other reason. Um, the uh, the magic about John Waters is that he was able to make something that was disgusting at the time and you're not mystified yeah. by their ratings today yeah. because they're still disgusting today. There's yeah. uh, John Waters even has even said he, uh, he's been taken to court over pink flamingos for like obscenity charges. And he's admitted he has no defense. <laughs> like this movie's obscene. Yep. <laughs> Why'd you make an obscene movie? I wanted to make an obscene movie. That's right. all. Who doesn't like an obscene movie? Come yeah. on. All right, so tell me about Female Trouble. What, uh, what is Female Trouble about? Female Trouble is... It's not that popular. It's not like everyone knows. Like, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not like Indiana Jones. Yeah, give uh, people the gist. Female Trouble play uh, is about Don Davenport, played by Divine. Mm. Uh, Don Davenport uh, is like a spoiled teenage brat. Mm. And she demands a lot from her family, and she's very caustic and yelling at all of her friends and uh when she doesn't get uh her coveted cha-cha heels for christmas Mm. uh she throws a fit uh runs away from home meets a stranger on the street and has sex with him right away he's also played by divine (laughs) so there's this really weird editing thing going on to have the you know show the two people having sex yeah you've Uh, seen the peter jackson's first film bad taste oh you bet i have yeah the opening of bad taste is a character played by peter jackson murdering a character played by peter jackson yeah (laughs) it kind of works actually like it's edited very effectively but yeah it's hilarious but uh Dad is drunk and le- like this is just like a, a melodrama writ large. It's like all of these horrible cliches from after school specials played up to the like their campiest degree. Uh, John Waters is sending up a, a certain kind of fallen woman genre that was yeah. like really popular, uh, like maybe in the forty, like thirties and forties, mm-hmm. uh, but had sort of turned into this very. Uh, lascivious subgenre by the 1950s mm. and he's just turning it into the sort of like the trash version of the 1970s uh so uh don davenport grows up uh has a child with herself uh <laughs> named taffy taffy is the uh, is played by mink stole um mink stole you know li- li- living legend uh yeah divine passed away in, in the late 80s i think but uh yeah it was, it was right after hairspray came out i think 
Uh, so, yeah, shortly right, thereafter. Right, yeah. Uh, long enough to have appeared on Married with Children. There you go. I, I think that was the last thing Divine ever did. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, Taffy dresses up as a teenager, goes to look for father, uh, bad things happen there. Uh, mm. Meanwhile, Don Davenport keeps hanging out in this beauty salon and eventually falls in with a group of, like, renegade aestheticians who believe that being beautiful is the most important thing, mm. but the way to be beautiful is through, like, violence and mutilation. Mm. Uh, and uh, at the very end of the movie, Divine has is has scar, is completely scarred, has been taken to court, is being tried for murder, and is executed. It's uh, just a really, really bad time for everybody. <laughs> That's a great quote. You should put that on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> a really, really, really bad time for everybody. Yeah. With an exclamation point, mm. nice cursive font. Yeah. Love uh, it. And, and of course, all, all of the, the John Waters regulars are in there. Edith mm-hmm. Massey is in there as well. Uh, and it's a film that celebrates the power of notoriety, mm. that being a horrible criminal is a virtue in John Waters' universe. Yeah, because then you stand out yeah. amongst the hoi polloi. Exa- uh, yeah. John Waters has said in interviews that... Uh, he likes to put what he calls interesting-looking people in his movies. Yeah. Uh, not beautiful people. He finds that a little bit dull. Beautiful yeah. is a little bit too... There's, like, too much of a consensus. At every movie puts... tries. Uh, Joel mm. Schumacher had a whole bit. He always wanted to cast beautiful people in his movies mm. because he thought that's what people wanted to see. Well, uh, people like they, seeing I'm, beautiful people on screen. And I'm going to make them look as beautiful as possible. Mm. And you can look at any Joel Schumacher movie. You'll find that there's at least a handful of people who probably look better than they'll ever look in any other film. Yeah. Uh, Jason Patrick in The Lost Boys? My God. <laughs> he's, he's quite a stud in that movie. Yeah, and he, you look at him in any other movie and he always looks kind of seedy or something like that like no a god <laughs> in the lost boys and look like, at any movie that doesn't yeah, I, you know. I, I feel like um like batman forever yeah. was like everyone's gorgeous and bad even even the people Val, in like Val horrible Kilmer. makeup yeah <laughs> like like looking like, amazing Val kilmer looks really good in that yeah. movie nicole kidman is oh she's like sculpted out of butter in that and movie. this is nicole kidman uh, she's like one of the notoriously most you know, like, you know conventionally like she, attractive people who yeah. ever lived and she i don't think she's ever looked better than mm. that movie. That's like, like, what if Veronica Lake but Nicole Kidman? I'm like, oh, can, they, <laughs> can the screen handle that? Yeah, that's like, like I, I don't know that's how like they did watching, that to her hair. But it's, yeah. it's like if you're watching The Adventures of Robin Hood, the old 1930s version, and mm. Will Scarlet's like red outfit is like too much for Technicolor. <laughs> that is Nicole like, Kidman in Batman Forever. Yeah, She's just, just too much for too, the screen. Too dazzling. Holy uh, shit. John Waters eschews that. Yeah. Uh, he, he wants to find people that are, like I said, in his words, interesting mm-hmm. to look at. So he likes to choose uh, a lot of uh, people of great size. He likes to choose people who just sort of ha- have a, a strange look about them. Yeah. Uh, he Just that's his aesthetic. That's what he really likes. And uh, this is a movie ab- about that, about finding a new... Uh, a standard of beauty, mm. uh, which just happens to run completely. It's like beauty counterculture, yeah, and uh, trying to find beauty in things that uh, the mainstream might describe as ugly, yeah. But to these people, is not just beautiful but godlike, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so there's movie like scenes in the movie where uh, Don Davenport like looks in a mirror after having suffered like a horrible burn accident and is like. Her face is scarred, and she just sort of looks and says, "Pretty, pretty." <laughs> like, like, like that's sort of like one yeah. of their calling cards. Pretty, pretty. Uh, so yeah, she looks at herself and just looks at all her friends and says, "Pretty, pretty." Yeah, it pretty, honestly, pretty. it honestly sounds, and, and again, I haven't seen it. Uh-huh. It sounds like kind of liberating. Yeah, to like yeah. to like be free 
of these conventional standards of beauty and actually just see beauty wherever you find it. Mm. That sounds great. I can see well, the. I can see it's one of. The, I think it's one of the things that I, I look at. Even something like I don't know, like Cry Baby, mm. uh, which you know, the star aside, is a wonderful film, mm. uh, and that's the one where the like, the 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 tough kids. The drapes, yeah. yeah, they're all they're they're with the exception of the protagonist, they're not like conventionally good looking mm. people, but they're the most likable, wonderful yeah, people. You a... want to go out with them, you want to hang out with them, you want to date them. All the pretty people are the mo- no, get away from me. There's even I want a... to hang out with one called Hatchet yeah, Face. Yeah, there's a character named Hatchet Face. Yeah, and they even like somebody even insults us, like, "What's wrong with your face?" And her her response is, "There's nothing wrong with my face. I got character." And, and she's like, great. Yeah. And she's wonderful. I love Hatchet Face. Hatchet Face, Hatchet face is great. Rules. She pulls a knife on some like boring frat boy characters right yeah. at the start of the movie. Yeah, and you and and you're with Hatchet Face the mm. whole fucking time. Great. And that's that's you're right. That's John. That's John Waters. That's, well, over. yeah. There's there's uh, there's Johnny Depp and you know there's Tracy Lords. There are some just gorgeous people. In there's that a movie, few, but, yeah. but like yeah, it's, it's he, he. But then uh, but then Iggy Pop and Susan Terrell start licking <laughs> each other's mouths. <laughs> I love John Waters. <laughs> yeah, I love John Waters too. I haven't seen oh, yeah. this. I, this is actually on my. I, there's a few films I tried to watch before this. One of which was The Five Obstructions. Another right. which was Female Trouble. I suspect I have a theory that at least one other movie I tried to watch in time for this and didn't is probably on your list, if not your number one. Uh, kind of curious how that's going to go, my, but my we're running baby, out of material. Because okay. you only got three left, and I only have four left. So let me go to my next one. And I'm certain, I, I, I don't think this one's going to be an overlap, but I think we're going to start hitting some more overlaps soon, because there's some big ones. Mm. Um, I don't really have a good segue, other than, uh, you know what movie is great? <laughs> the original Fright Night. I like Fright Night a lot. The original, now a lot the, of people the, love the... Tom the, Highland Fright yeah, Night. Yeah, the, 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 the Holland. That's what I said. You said Highland, but it's fine. Oh, Holland. Uh, in case anyone's paying attention. Um... Uh, a lot of people prefer and the the remake now, the one with Anton Yelchin and Tony Collette, David uh, Tennant, it's and fine. Colin Farrell. It's good. Yeah. I like that movie. It's a very good movie. I think Colin Farrell is really genuinely very frightening in that film. He's really great. That's a very different beast. Yeah. And I appreciate having a favorite and liking that one more. But for me, every time I go back and watch the original Fright Night, I fall in love with it in a different way. Because this is one of those great movies that works on a wide variety of levels. On one hand... It's a really excellent rear window, except Jimmy Stewart doesn't see a murderer next door. He sees a vampire. Yeah. And no one believes him. Uh, it's not Jimmy Stewart, obviously, but it's like, that's the character. He's a teenage boy, and he thinks his next door neighbor, played by the, the, never better Chris Sarandon. Or actually, that's not true. Well, Chris Equally Randon's, good in The Princess Bride and The Nightmare, Bur- uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, Chris Sarandon's just pretty charming. All Actually, also um, equally good in The Resurrected. You know what? I'm not going to say never better. The always good Chris Sarandon. Yeah. Uh, he thinks his next-door neighbor is a vampire and becomes obsessed with him. And nobody believes him. People start dying. Nobody believes him. And he finally uh, consults the only person he thinks might believe him, and that's his local horror host... Uh, played by the great... Um, Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. Uh, and Roddy McDowell is basically playing Peter Cushing. He used to play the vampire hunter in a lot of classic old vampire movies, and now he's stuck hosting basic cable horror. Mm. And he thinks this kid is, uh, you know, an overly enthusiastic fan, but eventually he realizes that he's right, and they have to find some way to stop Chris Randon. On that level, it works as a great thriller. It's also a wonderful meta-thriller. That is aware of the existence of vampires and horror movies in the world around it. Very much like a predecessor to Scream in that regard. Um, And that the way that horror fans are eh, kind of seen as kooks 
and like off on the side and maybe not to be taken too seriously and even the people who make horror films might be a little embarrassed by them in this particular context but like the monster squad what if only the people who believe in things no one else believes are the ones who can save us all there's something mm. kind of heroic about that and then there's the part I didn't get when I was a kid and did all... get after I came out <laughs> all, all you mean like all the gayness it's super <laughs> queer it's a really queer it's flick. a super queer film mm. so Basically, well, his like, obsession with Chris Sarandon is partly because he thinks he's a vampire. Also, Chris Sarandon is a fucking stud muffin. Yeah, there, there's a, a definite uh, element of Chris Sarandon seducing uh, mm. William Ragsdale, who plays the main character. Yeah, uh, and yeah, the, like the sexual tension is really palpable, but he ends up sort of. Uh, Getting to uh, is it Jerry? Jerry's Chris Sarandon. Who's yeah? Who's, who's Jerry Dandridge. Uh, um, it's um, it's, it's, it's not, uh, Brewster. Charlie Brewster. Charlie. Um, yeah. He tries to get through Charlie through his girlfriend, mm-hmm. who's played by Amanda Bierce, who is gay. Yes. Uh, she played the next door neighbor in Married with Children to bring it back to Married with Children mm-hmm. somehow. Uh, and uh, and there's a whole scene where he seduces her, but he's also seducing her in front of the protagonist. It mm-hmm. is a seduction ritual. For both of them, if you yeah, really think man. about it. And it's hot. It's <laughs> legit hot. Because it's Chris Sarandon. Because it's Chris Sarandon. Uh, of course it is. Meanwhile, uh, Chris Sarandon has also seduced the very queer reading Evil Ed character. Yes. Who's who, like he's presented as like a, a punker spaz kind of a yeah, character. But, but he's clearly, yeah. yeah if like, you know where, if you know where you're looking, it's, yeah, it's all there. And yep. he's played by Stephen Jeffries, who is a queer porn star. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, did. that's hilarious. I had no idea. Yeah. He, yeah. Uh, uh, his Look up Sam Ritter. Okay. Uh, that's that's his, uh, his porn name. Well, good for him. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so this movie works on like a whole bunch of different levels, and on every single level it works. It's great queer cinema. Hmm. It's great horror cinema. It's great meta cinema. It's really a wonderfully funny comedy. Every single version of this works. And while I like the remake a lot, mm. and I would wreck if, if you said, hey, should I see that remake? I'd say, yes, it's good. But it doesn't have all those different layers. Yeah. It's pretty much just the one layer. It's it's more about um, more about violent masculinity and why that is briefly appealing but mostly repellent. And then the whole David Tennant is... A, a stage magician that sounds clever, but it actually doesn't contribute much to the movie. Mm. I, it, David Tennant's great in it, but I just don't think that all the changes are really amplifying the story mm. all that much. I will say the original Fright Night 2, which got dumped on, like, I think it almost went straight to video or did go straight no, to it, video. No, it was in theaters briefly. But Very yeah. briefly. Um, underrated. It's all right. It's not great, but there's so some really it, great moments in it. Julie Carmen, I think, played the the vampire in that one. Um, yeah, it's played Jerry's sister. Yeah, uh, I, f- I think it's Julie Carmen. Um, it's and also then, it's also pretty queer as well, so that's also cool. But um, and then there was uh, the remake of Fright Night, and then there's another film called Fright Night Two, which is also a remake of Fright Night. Yeah, which but, <laughs> but it's it's gender flipped. It's, it's gender flipped. It's it's basically we'll take the idea that it's. The, the the lady vampire from Fright Night 2, but we're just going to remake Fright Night 1, and we're going to do it in Eastern Europe, because that's where we could afford to shoot it. No. Um, those, that, those Romanian tax breaks. Oh God. Fright Night 2, the original Fright Night 2, is quite good. Not right. as good as Fright Night 1, but definitely worth seeing if you want to do a double feature. The remake of Fright Night, quite good, a different beast. I don't think it's as interesting cinematically, but it's a very good vampire movie. Fright Night 2, which I did bother to see... The remake well, I, of Fright I, Night. I, I watched it too. Yeah, it's 
very dull, actually. It's, it's just it's, kind of a uh, dull, uninteresting version of it. I don't know why it had to be boring. It's just, I, it, it is. I, I'm completely baffled and frustrated yeah. by B filmmakers who know why we're here. Yeah, we're here. And to, we're here. Uh, we're here for schlock. We're here for schlock. Yeah, we we don't expect see, much of you. We want. We want violence. We want yeah. uh, death, and we want sex. Yeah, and, and give yeah. us that, and we're and, good. And maybe, a, and maybe like a, a rock musical, too. Just, sex and drugs and rock and roll. That's just what just we want. make it fun. Just make it fun. Yeah, that's all we're. That's all we're asking. Cut it quick. You can make it short. I don't care. Right? Yeah, you know, 70 it can be seventy minutes. minute movie. That's don't great. Care. Yeah, in and out. Uh, why? Why are you holding back? Why are you building yeah. atmosphere? Why I don't are you Patting this out. I, I don't understand. There, it doesn't happen as often as it used to. But like, I, I have to imagine that if you're making a bunch of like a or even making just one like low budget straight to video sequel to something big, mm. you'd want people to notice it. Yeah, it's easy for that to be a drop in the bucket. You want you would want people to say, "I saw this straight to video sequel," and you know what? It's pretty fucking good. Mm. It's very entertaining. It had some pizzazz to it. Like, that person should do other films. You'd think that's where your mind would be, at least some of the time. And yet some of it's just like, I don't care. Let's just make this cop and a half, too. <laughs> like, someone's got to make cop and a half, too. It's okay. not. It's going to be me, because I need the money. Okay, We're just so going to do it. You, you, you need, you're a film director. Yeah. You need the money. They say, we got a cop and a half, too. Mm -hmm. What's your pitch? Oh, well. Yeah. Okay, Cop and a Half 2. So the, the premise of Cop and a Half yes. is uh, uh, an adult cop uh, has mm. to, under a bizarre set of circumstances, team up with a child. Well, a child witnessed a murder, I think, or something like that, and mm. he won't turn state's evidence unless the cops basically let him be a cop for a day. Mm. And he ends up teaming up with Burt Reynolds. Haha, ha, what a weird combo. Uh, hates and children. That's, and that's yeah. the shtick. It's... it's Probably a better sketch than it is a so, movie. Yeah. So uh, the premise is a cop and a child yeah. have to work together. Yeah, it's, in it's some a, capacity. It, the the I, lethal weapon buddy cop movies pretty much stem from the seventies, but it was lethal mm. weapon that like finally codified it, uh, and I think mm, its final form. I, I would say forty eight hours, but uh, yeah. it was the one who punched. Yeah. We'll just say those were like those are the ones like everyone's kind of copying that mold. Um, and then it's just a matter of well, how do we keep it fresh? I don't know. One of the cops is a dinosaur, and the other one's Whoopi Goldberg. That's an actual movie it's called Theodore Rex. It's a real film. Look it up. I dare you. I haven't seen Theodore Rex. I don't have the courage. <laughs> uh, but yeah, one of them was "What if Burt Reynolds and a little kid?" Mm. So you want to do Cop and a Half, and you, what's your pitch for? You, it sounds like you have one in your back pocket. No, I don't. I okay, just, we're just going to spit all this. I was just challenging this. you. Yeah. Okay, so it's Cop and a Half. You're gonna do. You got to do it again. But here's what I think. Mm. First off, I think the title has got to be is is obvious. It's mm. got to be Cop Two and a Half. Okay. Okay. So here's what I'm thinking. Um, I would do this as Stakeout. Stakeout. So Stakeout is a movie in which uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez have to stake out a house, and a bunch of wacky misunderstandings happen. It's two people, I would say, uh, two people with some kind of romantic chemistry, mm -hmm. but they they don't like each other much at the beginning, but they grow to like each other. Have to like hunker down in a house in suburbia. Okay. And then the there's like a little Dennis the Menace type kid who is really nosy and thinks they're up to no good. Uh-huh. And they end up having to basically uh, prevent him from ruining their opportunity to catch the bad guy. So it's kind of like an inverted Home Alone. Okay. Or like more like an inverted Home Alone 3. But anyway. So yeah, it's like Dennis the Menace meets Stakeout. 
All right, that's that, that's functional. Yeah, that's and you the, can shoot it mostly in yeah, one house. Was, it's pretty say, easy yeah. to do. Fourteen forty would get yeah. a year check. It I think so. Right. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. I think that's pretty good for having thirty seconds of prep time. Yeah. No. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. So you call it cop two and a half. Yeah. yeah. I'd, no. I'd I'd want I'd want to do something a little bit more like the aggression scale, where <laughs> okay. where the kid really is, dark. the kid is like like really the kid's the monster. The yeah. kid is the monster, and okay. like the, the cop has to like so so it's like tra- uh, transport a prisoner. There you go. But it's a prison transport, but it's like this that's a serial killer child. Problem yeah. child meets like that one like scene Con from Silence Air of the Lamb. Yeah. Problem child meets Con Air is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great idea. I mm. love that's not bad. Mm. Like, we'll do that for cop like, three and a half. Like the the cop like the kid was like some sort of cop prodigy, but you mm. know, like snapped at some point and yeah. started committing crimes. It's like I some vicious serial killer. I love it. That's great. That's yeah. That, that's my pitch. I love it. We'll, we'll, it's just a matter of which one they they decide to do first, obviously, because right. we both deserve a lot of money for this. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. All right. So just mail us checks and uh, we'll get started. Uh, it's my turn, isn't it? Uh, I think. We got off on a major tangent. I have no idea how long ago we got off on this tangent. It's been an <laughs> well, hour. I talked about female trouble. So, oh, female uh, trouble. Okay, so I'm going to go... Okay, so I have, I have four more. Uh, say I don't really have a better segue into my number one than anything. Oh, no, I just said Fright Night. That's on me. Oh, okay. I so, said Fright Night. I, said, oh, I, yeah, I Fright, stand by it. Fright Night. Fright Night's fucking great. Please right. see the original Fright Night if you haven't already. And if you haven't seen right, it in well. a while, rewatch it because it holds up better than you might expect. Okay, uh, back to Cop and a Half. Um, <laughs> speaking of trash. Uh, okay. <laughs> I have an, another sort of uh, classic midnight movie. It, it's mm. maybe a little gauche to include this on the list, along with Female Trouble and Frankenhooker, but I, I have to mention Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. All right, that was my number one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We're, we're gunning towards the end. It's fine. I don't mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad I didn't like, cut you off at the knees like right at the start, because that's I, happened in the past. I was nervous about that, and when you said you didn't pick Frankenstein, I'm like, okay, good. So it's good to talk about Frankenstein. He didn't pick that as his number one. And I got like the, the other... like three or whatever on my list are all potentially your number ones. Right. Although I suspect they're not because I think I know what it is. But okay. in any um, case, yeah, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is my pick for the for I think it was John Waters who said it's the best movie of all time and I can't really fight it. Well, he, I don't necessarily he, he agree, he didn't, he didn't but he just he didn't yeah. just say it was the best movie that has ever been made. He yeah. says it's the best movie that will ever be made. And I like, also can't fight there, that. There there won't be a better movie in film history than Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Yeah, I might not agree with that, but I don't have a convincing counter argument. We were just talking about how uh, exploitation filmmakers aren't giving us what we want. Yeah. Russ Meyer knew. Yeah. Uh, R- Russ Meyer knew exactly what we wanted. We want to see go-go dancers committing violence and screaming really weird dialogue at each yeah. other over a dinner table. We want to see drag racing. Mm. We want to see sex. We want to see dancing. We want to see violence. Uh, and by God, Faster Pussycat has it all. It, the Faster Pussycat is a story of a group of go-go dancers who mm. get off of their shift, decide to go drag racing in the middle of the desert, immediately kill a guy, uh-huh. <laughs> kidnap his girlfriend, and then go well, they, off... They, they race him, yeah. they beat him in the race, pull him from the car, and break his spine. Yeah, in front of his girlfriend. Mm. <laughs> they kidnap the girlfriend. He's like the, wearing a bikini throughout yeah. this whole thing. And then they find out there's like buried treasure or something at this one house but the house is run by this monster misogynist and his like super powered son and he's like like, he's like rocky horror essentially yeah and then he has like another son who's a bit more you know a bit more approachable but is just as wicked and um yeah a bunch of horrible people do horrible things and it all ends real bad Mm. um is a filmmaker who made movies because he likes breasts. 
that there's no two ways about that. You look he's, at the majority of his career, it's breasts. He he just that, he just like busty women. He That's had all a you thing. Can say. It, you know, like you look at like oh, Quentin Tarantino has a thing for feet because it's feet mm. stuff is in all of his movies. It's an easy observation to make, uh, but there's no mistaking Russ Meyer. <laughs> he, he he likes very buxom women. Mm. That's his shtick. That's the what he likes. That's what he likes to film. A large part of his career is what we would call nudie films. Not necessarily hardcore movies. Just films of women with very large breasts doing mm. stuff. Yeah, There's not even dan- a plot to around, a lot of it. Dancing around with shirts off. Yeah, yeah a lot of them are just cavorting really through uh, the woods, yeah. sunning themselves. There's like whole fucking films. Mm. Feature length films. That's but, just <laughs> beneath the valley of the women. ultra vixens is uh, oh beneath the valley of the ultra vixens is like very strange. It, that, uh, that's the one he did later on, right? Yeah, that was like yeah. one of his later films. That that one's got some troubling stuff in it that doesn't work. But um, I think it's a super. Is it super vixen? Uh, there's one just called vixen. Yeah, no, there's there's um. Super Vixens. Right. Super Vixens is one where that, this movie's fucking great, by the way. Uh, it is about a guy who is uh, every woman responds to him sexually, and every woman is in the world of Russ Meyer the super version of a woman to the point that they're literally called. If your name is like Roberta, you're Super Roberta. That's literally what they call you. <laughs> All right, and everyone responds to him sexually to the point that he no longer he can no longer like exist in this world. Like, he's starting to get, like, pushed out of it. Meanwhile, and it's actually a really violent scene, so just a heads up, there's, some viol- there's a lot of violence in this movie. Um, Charles Napier plays an evil, corrupt murderer cop who wants him dead and, at the end of the movie, kidnaps his girlfriend, drags her to the top of a mountain, and as our hero is trying to climb the mountain to save her, Charles Napier is throwing dynamite down at him. That's the level <laughs> of subtlety we're working with here. That movie is great. Mm. But Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is a movie that... It, what's cool about Russ Myers, if you actually watch his filmography, mm. you see him start with very simple goals. And what you see by the time he has hit Faster Pussycat, and it's far from his last movie. It's still pretty early in his career, actually. Mm. At some point, he got really good. Like, he gets better mm. with over time. And he starts realizing, you start realizing that Russ Meyer may be making films about a fetish, but he has learned where to put a camera. He has learned how to tell a story. He There are mm. action sequences. There are just people in a desert fighting in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill that are, as near as I can tell, perfectly shot. He knows exactly where to film it. He knows when someone, when someone whips out a switchblade and opens it, he knows the exact most dynamic way to do that. And, and then the, when you so cut yeah, to the, the low angle on the blade, and yeah, you see the, uh, it's like perfectly out of a arm, pulp you know. magazine cover. And then he knows that the next foot piece of coverage is them doing it in the most like dynamic Marvel, how to draw comics, the Marvel way throwing pose. <laughs> like every single yeah, shot, yeah. like Hitchcock couldn't have uh, uh, storyboarded that better. It's an incredibly well-told incredibly sleazy yet perfectly assembled film uh and i have a weakness for his dialogue yeah, uh, it's good dialogue uh, well it, 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 it is and it isn't it, it, is you know it is isn't. It's, it's perfectly weird it's perfectly it's it's like ed wood dialogue like it's, yeah. it's sort of popped in from another dimension like yeah. people don't speak like real people and he's clearly trying to layer in some sort of like poetic message yeah. but it feels really kind of clunky and strange in a way that it becomes its own language yeah. and you get wrapped up in it regardless um i, I just looked up the opening narration <laughs> oh yeah because uh, it starts with the movie starts in this really really wonderful way where we see um, 
if you've ever seen a, a film strip, there's a soundtrack strip on it. Yeah. And if uh, the film falls off the uh, the perfor- the um, perforations, yeah. Uh, the image might start to drift in like onto the screen and you'll actually see this sort of, it looks like a Richter scale reading, mm-hmm. a sort of like soundtrack. And that appears right on the screen. Mm-hmm. And then it of course increases. Then there's like two of them, then there's five of them all on the screen. And uh, we hear the, narr- the narrator just sort of yelling in this really kind of <clears throat> carnival barker sort of way. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence. The word and the act. That while violence cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises, its favorite mantle still remains sex. <laughs> like, so ostensibly, this is a story about how you know sex and violence are inextricably linked, and it's mm-hmm. almost supposed to read like a cautionary tale. The problem is, it's too awesome. It, yeah, you love the criminals more. Yeah. More the the Tourist bad Satana. guy are, are the people is yeah. this lascivious old man who's trying to assault the villain characters essentially yeah, yeah the villains it's like the you think you know who the bad guys are because they're the ones who just killed a guy for no particular reason and Taurus satana is this incredible larger than life figure just towering over everybody just like this the one of the most like just instantly iconic imagery character delivery everything about the character is larger than life and perfect and you think, okay, well, we know who the villains are. And then the point is, they meet someone who's worse. Yeah. And then they're actually, like, not as bad in comparison. And what a great sort of setup. Is it's the people, the people who are decent in this movie get get steamrolled. Hmm. They're just, they're terrible, terrible things. It's only the bad can survive. And it's just a matter of who's the, who's the best bad. Hmm. Uh, this came out the same year as two other Russ Meyer movies. One I've actually never seen called Motorpsycho. Have you ever seen Motorcycle? I haven't seen seen that. Can't speak to it. But it came out the same year as, honestly, one of his other best movies called Mud Honey. And Mud Mm. Honey is basically... um, And yes, the band got their name. Yes. What if Russ Meyer uh, uh, made The Grapes of Wrath? He made (laughs) like a Dust Bowl movie that was all about the Great Depression and sex and repression in the Great Depression. And you know what? It's as good as any Depression-era melodrama. It's really well. It's it's sleazy, but it's about sleaziness. It's actually like a really solid drama. It's an excellent movie. One of the great tragedies is that uh, Russ Meyer, and it's good for him. You know, he in his in his lifetime he owned the rights to almost all of his movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which which he which if you bought a Russ Meyer DVD, mm-hmm. he got every set. Of he that. got the money. The yeah, problem is he couldn't afford to have like wide print runs, yeah. so they were really hard to track down. A lot. They're not readily. Not all of them are readily available for streaming. Very few of them have had like mm-hmm. major re-releases, and so some of them are harder to track down. And you might need to actually spend some money on like it's a real money on like mm-hmm. a used DVD. And and I'll be uh, frank, not all of them are worth it. No, not although, every Russ Meyer movie is great. I would actually tell you, you do not need to see Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. It doesn't. I don't think it works. I think it's got some really ugly stuff in it. But uh, that one's not great. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was a studio film, and yeah. that was you know the one, the famous one, co-written by Roger Ebert, and mm-hmm. that's on the Criterion Collection. Yeah. So you can get that on the Criterion. And that movie's channel. great. That was not a sell-up movie in any way. He made a oh, no, real it's, fucking it's Russ really Meyer wonderful. movie. Uh, that's a great film. Um, Faster Pussycat is on Plex. Good. Uh, if. I'm glad. A, a very underrated streaming service. It's I, like it's I like Tubi underst- without the Fox money. I don't even really understand Plex very well, but I mean I need to get on that. But I'm glad it is available because it is excellent 
And if you've never seen it, you should. It's fantastic. Mm. And if you like that, I would recommend Super Vixens and Mud Honey. Yeah. Uh, not all of his movies are great. Some of them are messy, and some of them were like, we lost the entire audio soundtrack, and we had to figure out something. Like, well, there's some he, weird shit. He made yeah. low budget. Yeah. He, he admittedly made it low yeah. budget trash. But there's like there's some of his movies where it's just mm. like, you know what? I, I, I wouldn't recommend most people see the movie Black Snake. It's no. not... It's not I, uh, That's not a movie you, you, you could make today or should have made then. Uh, it does not work. But when he was great, he was absolutely great. And I would say Faster Pussycat is the best movie that begins with the letter F. I, uh, my introduction to Russ Meyer was through Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh, yeah. Because uh, he's in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> There's a, a sketch near the end of the movie where a guy's looking at a video store and the clerk calls him over and says, It's Friday night, huh? Yeah. Ain't got a date, huh? And he reaches to this like special section behind the counter yeah. with uh, videotapes with names on them. It's like, like what's your what's your name, kid? Ray. So he pulls out the tape that says Ray. You're renting this tonight, and it's like a virtual date. Like, yeah. He, he... Nowadays, that's actually like a thing they yeah. do in the adult industry. Like that's been a, that's been a thing for forever. Mm-hmm. But like when Amazon Went on the Moon came out, that was like a funny idea that they would be like all in the first person, mm-hmm. and like a girl says, "Oh hi, Ray. Mm-hmm. Come on in." And, and she's yeah. a, a character from a Russ. Yeah, very boxsome. Uh, yeah. Very attractive, yeah, and and, uh, and so it, and then it, it all goes. And then of course wrong. The, the date goes very badly <laughs> for him. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, Russ Meyer is the video store clerk. Yeah, you, you, you're gonna rent this one, Ray. Yeah. It, I when I learned who he was, it's like, am I? Is that gonna happen to me? Do I get to go to a video store and get a recommendation from Russ Meyer? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it's That'd like, cool. what what am I watching tonight, Russ Meyer? You're watching this, kid. Yes, I am, Mister Meyer. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I guess uh, let's see. I got. So I, 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 I didn't mean to steal one from no, you. No, but I no, guess, it's fine. Uh, yeah. It's fine. Uh, tell you what, I'll take the next one then. I'll just, right. I'll just, I'll pick it up from there. Um, all right. So I've got three left, and they're all stone classics. All right. Um, I guess I have two left. Well, who cares? Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, one of the best science fiction films ever made. Mm-hmm. One of the most attractive science fiction films ever made. Just really lovely. We already talked about Fantastic Plan. We did. And there's another one that is also incredibly strange and colorful and ambitious and influential. And it is, of course, Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet. All right. Yeah. The other planet. I, the other F planet. I love You're of F Troop. This is F planet. I love Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet there, rules. There was there's the Coke and Pepsi people. Mm-hmm. There's the Elvis and Beatles people. Like the yeah. the meaningless rivalries. Uh, when we were teens, there were the Forbidden Planet people, and there were the Day the Earth Stood Still people. That was more of a uh, you thing. I, I guess in my circles, <laughs> that was not really. Every, everyone I knew was a Forbidden Planet person. I, I was I was always a Day the Earth Stood Still okay. guy. Uh, which is not to say I have anything against Forbidden Planet. I imagine not. I love Forbidden Planet. Uh, Leslie Nielsen is in Forbidden Planet, and he vaporizes a puma. And <laughs> and if the if that's not a fucking movie, <laughs> Forbidden Planet is a it's, film from the night. Yeah, it's it's an adaptation, a very loose adaptation of uh, Frank William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Hmm. Which is uh, about 
uh, a mysterious sorcerer who lives all alone on a planet, and people land uh, not a planet on an island, and people land on that island, and they, and they uh, run afoul of monsters and well, things. They, and they, he happens to know them, and he wants to get revenge. He was, but yeah. he's been living there, and he's perfected his magic, but mm. uh, and now he's become vengeful and hateful. Yes, but his daughter is not as hateful and vengeful, and then she was up, raised on the, the island. Yeah, and she ends up bridging the gap and falling in love, and it's all very very nice. Forbidden Planet's basically like, yeah, but what if in space? Hmm. So uh, Leslie Nielsen is captain of the USS Enterprise. Not literally, but Gene Roddenberry saw this fucking thing. Everybody saw this movie. I realized that, but Gene Roddenberry took it to heart because there's a lot of Star Trek in it. Uh, He's the captain of a ship. He's uh, checking out a really remote planet, and he finds out that there is a famous and presumably lost scientist, played by the great Walter Pigeon, who's been living there alone, with his incredibly attractive daughter, and he's got a sh- Leslie Nielsen is a ship full of men, and they're all navy guys, so they're all Not just a, they're all they're all just like ooh, and Leslie Nielsen's like shut up, shut up, don't I mean, be a dick. It, it it was made at a sexist time, yes. so there wouldn't be female officers on board. But I like yeah. to think that uh, th- it just happened to be all straight men on, yeah, on it, this particular sheer show. coincidence, right? Just like anyway, uh, wait a minute. What? It's a, don't, it's, don't, don't we have gender parity on the ship? No, part, there's just weird Parts weird of the movie are scheduling. sexist. It's fine. Uh, it's not fine, but it is what it is. Um, I can't change that. I'm sorry. It's a sexist but, movie made a sexist time. But they also have one of the cinema's most iconic robots, Robbie. Hmm. Robbie the robot. Robbie, who went on to star in other stuff. Robbie was. <laughs> Robbie had a career after this. Robbie was this really gorgeous-looking robot suit. Mm. Uh, it it was there were almost no angles on it. It was all smooth uh, uh, all curves. Bubbly kind of very yeah. bubbly. It had like a, a large like working computer inside its head, and it had like this clear plastic dome over the head, and so you could see it functioning on stripes. Yeah. that would uh, blink when it spoke. He yeah. had this great. Robot voice that was it wasn't like it, it wasn't emotionless, it sounded like he was enthusiastic about everything. Hmm. Hello, how can I help you today? That kind of thing. Um, absolutely wonderful. And when they land on the planet, they find out that Walter Pigeon is keeping some really strange secrets about alien technology. Meanwhile, uh, an invisible monster is killing everyone on Leslie Nielsen's ship. Hmm. Uh, it's full of wonderful imagery. Yeah. The imagery alone would be enough to soar this movie into one of the best sci-fi movies ever made. Uh, the the matte paintings are stunning and strange. The colors are wild, and, and they don't feel like a place you would have just shot on Earth. Uh, the set design. Considering that many of the things in Forbidden Planet hadn't been completely solidified into cliché yet, a lot of it feels really on the edge. It really feels like we're, we're coming up with new ideas and exciting new things. Uh, and the sound design is completely out of this world. It was, it was uh, uh, using, um, what was what did they use? Did they use, they use a theremin for it? Or what uh, is it? That you're, you're thinking of the day, the earth's still I think of the earth's still, yeah. No, it, it, was, it was just a lot of like echoey kind yeah. of sounds, like it, pl- plinking noises. It was a lot of, it was basically one of the first uh, movies to use what we would now call electronica yeah. as its score. And it feels... <laughs> like genuinely even today yeah. this is not what a movie sounds like it sounds very alien in that very sci-fi other worlds this is not like something we've seen before kind of way um everything about it feels fresh because and it's it's yeah it's, it's interesting because it's one of those movies where everyone ripped it off and yet the original still feels different 
because mm-hmm. so many people drained it of color, drained it of personality, took out the big ideas, couldn't get the monster to look right. Yeah. There's this incredible bit where the monster is like they've they've put up like this uh, force an elect- field, an electrified fence essentially, yeah, yeah. around their ship because they knew the monster is going to attack again tonight. And the monster like and you can see it and like it's like footprints are like in it's, the it's sand. In, it's invisible. We see its feet yeah. landing in the sand, but we and can't its see feet the look completely yeah. bizarre. Like that does not look like a footprint like anything you've ever seen before. And then when it hits the fence briefly you see electricity in this wonderfully because they had the hand animated mm. it's wonderful hand animated electricity and you see the electricity like sort of crackle all around its contours and for one second you get a pretty good look at its outline it's super weird and scary yeah, and yeah, yeah. oh i love it, it so looks, much it's like the kathoga from the relic um everything is the relic with you I mean, Everything is the relic. You bring I this mean, up it, constantly. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the pivot point of cinema. What can I say? Um, I'm looking forward to the movies that begin with R. <laughs> I will not bring up the relic. Nothing but relic. Everything, everything, the relic. The, the relic was a fun experience I had when I was in college uh-huh. because I got I was the test audience for that one. Oh, okay. The special effects weren't done. Oh, that's fun. And there were uh, shot missing cards. Oh, that's also fun. And. Uh, that just sort of added to like this weird B movie appeal. So yeah. me and my friends, we were all just having a great old time. Some of my friends st- snuck some beers under the Paramount lot, mm. and we watched. Uh, I-, I didn't drink any, but we we watched the Relic with the shot missing cards, and it was a lot of nice. Fun. Well, in any That's case, all. in any case, Forbidden Planet is stunningly yeah. visualized. The soundscapes are out of this world. The story it feels like a wonderfully strange, like weird science, yeah, like uh, EC Comics kind yeah, of tale. There, there's and- this. Uh, secret about the planet where mm. like it, it there's actually like ancient machine left, be, mm-hmm. left behind by some ancient civilization and yeah, it feels kind of crafty in yeah. a way and like walter pigeon is bringing so much real dignity to this thing and mm. robbie is such a wonderfully unique creation and yeah, uh, i just love this movie to pieces it, it ages again it's, it's sexist no one's gonna pretend it's mm. not sexist but it doesn't dominate too much of the movie that you can't enjoy it mm. uh and it's really not about the romance subplot such as it is no that's that's no. a that feels really tacked on or, that's or, not why the movie is here or the alcoholic subplot oh, the, the funny drunk the funny yeah it's like <laughs> I, I i've run out of whiskey hey robbie can you make more yes i can make 50 cases of it okay how about <laughs> just one <laughs> just, just need one case of it um Ro- the robbie the robot uh mm. suit like robbie showed up in other things robbie showed yeah. up in a film called the invisible boy showed up in uh, gilligan's island it was on gilligan's island uh yeah. and robbie the robot also had a guest spot on lost in space so was, robbie got around was robbie literally the robot and got lost in space or was it just a similar to the robot it was literally the robot the main robot no, no, the the main robot from Austin Spade was just the robot. Okay, but they they brought they, Robbie in as a cameo. Robbie like came in as okay. a cameo, and there's Did this they fight. Oh my god, the the fight between Robbie and the robot is one of the most embarrassing things. <laughs> Because, I mean, Lost in Space was a pretty damn cheap show. It was as a very it is. cheap show, yeah. Uh, so th- there's this wonderful <laughs> scene where the robot and Robbie are like standing opposite each other at like th- hurling insults at each other. Mm. It's like compared to me, you're very ignorant. You're even stupider than I thought, <laughs> stupid, sad machine. And they like fire lasers and they just nice. go, they kind of barely move and just go, <laughs> Remember, when It's J- really hilarious. Remember when John Woo rebooted Lost in Space? Yes, I do. I, I remember that. that on Cancel, yeah, on too, Cancel soon. too Soon. There was a failed TV pilot for Lost in Space directed by John Woo. Like I was like he was coming right off of Face Off as well. No, I think it was, it was, no, it was right. there. It was like this is more like the paycheck era. 
Like he was still a major name, but he right. was he wasn't making big movies as big. Um, but and here's the thing: it's not bad actually. It's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually pretty good. <laughs> anyway, um, but anyway, yeah. That's did, did you see any of the Netflix Lost in Space? I watched most of the first season. I actually meant to get back around to it because I was enjoying it. I thought yeah, that, um, that first uh, season's really Parker good. Posey was great. Yeah, she plays the yeah. uh, the. The, uh, um, Jonathan the, Harris role, yeah, the, the, the evil mad scientist. Doctor, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I liked it. I actually meant to watch more of it. I just, you know, I have to watch so much stuff for work, watching stuff for fun. Usually, yeah, end up yeah. taking a back seat. But, uh, uh, but I did enjoy it quite a bit, and yeah, uh, I, it's a hell of a lot better than the movie, man. I know this about uh, the Robbie the Robot suit. Like, uh, they kept it. You know, it, it showed Good. up in all these different things, and then. Yeah. Uh, a collector bought it. They put it on display in like a car museum, and it was just vandalized to shit. Like people picked no. at it, and scratched oh, at it. Oh fuck and, them! That's well, horrible. Then, but then uh, it was passed on to uh, somebody else who restored it. That's nice. Then it fell into disrepair again. <sighs> uh, so they restored it again, and they a, yeah. and by then they like they restored it in like the eighties. I remember yeah. this this reading a story about how they restored Robbie the robot, and it went to auction at Sotheby's and sold for like over five million dollars. Good, I think that's history, right? And there. I think it still holds a record for like the most expensive movie prop. Good. In, in history. Well, I hope whoever has it is taking good care of it because that right there is one of the great movie props. Yeah, yeah costumes, the, whatever you want to call the, it. It's the, one of the great. The Robbie prop yeah. costume, whatever. Yeah, is. Right. So Forbidden Planet didn't make your list. Uh, I didn't. I'm it, it, al- it almost did, okay. but no, I didn't. I didn't choose Forbidden right. Planet. So uh, you have you. I, I have I, my I number. I'd, I already know. filled that quota with Fantastic Planet. So. Fair enough. All right. What's what's your second to last pick? Uh, my second to last pick um, is it's a movie about its own making. Really, it also pairs with a documentary about its own making. So there's oh, a lot to tell okay. about the making of Fitzcarraldo, there you uh, go. Uh, uh, Werner Herzog's film from the early '80s. Yeah. Um, Fitzcarraldo is a story of madness, and when you're watching it, you feel like you're going insane. Uh, it's about uh, an opera enthusiast played by uh, <laughs> Werner Herzog's favorite maniac, Klaus Kinski. <laughs> oh, uh, there's a really wonderful uh, short film. I-, I encourage you to look it up. Um, mm. It's called... Uh, I think it's called Please Kill Mr. Kinski. It's from the director of Crawl Space. Crawl Space. Uh, yeah, yeah. His, his name is Robert Smollett, I believe. I'll look uh, it up. Crawl Space is this very low-budget, very weird horror movie in which Klaus Kinski plays a guy who owns like an apartment building and he's spying on all of his uh, tenants and mm-hmm. he's surreptitiously murdering them. He's very weird and creepy and it's a very odd movie. And apparently he was such a pain in the ass mm-hmm. that the director made a movie called Let's kill Klaus Kinski. Uh, yeah, it's uh, please or please kill Klaus. Please Kinski. Kill, kill Klaus Kinski. Uh, please kill Mr. Kinski. Please kill Mr. Kinski. And yeah. uh, the idea they were shooting David Schmoller. Yeah, David Schmoller. And uh, yeah. they uh, like they were shooting in Italy, and evidently, like the crew is like, we can, we can, we can kill him. And <laughs> and David Schmoller, David Schmoller, like admitted, like there was a moment where it was like. Do I? No, no, don't, don't yeah. kill him. I don't no. want him dead. I know how horrible that sounds. Herzog considered it. Yeah, Herzog definitely considered it. Yeah. Probably multiple times. Uh, because Klaus Kinsey wasn't just a maniac on the set of Crawl Space. He was a maniac on the set of every movie he worked on. He, mm. he was uh, brash uh, mm. and cruel and you know mm. made all kinds of really crazy demands. Mm. And it um, was particularly bad on the set of Fitzcarraldo because mm. Fitzcarraldo, uh, for authenticity's sake, actually shot out in a jungle. Mm. Uh Werner Herzog wanted that authenticity. And the idea was, uh, Klaus Kinsey plays this opera enthusiast who gets a, a wild hair to build an opera house. 
out in the middle of the jungle. And he needs to take this uh, steamship to this particular part way down in the in the jungle uh, and uh, to where the landmass between two neighboring rivers is the thinnest. And the uh-huh. idea is he's going to drag the boat out of one river over the landmass into the other. That's the movie. I have two questions. I'm going to make a confession here. I've never seen Fitzgeraldo. Another one I've oh, always gosh, mentioned. Okay. I heard it's great. Yeah. Two things, real fast, before we move on completely. I just want to give a quick shout-out to David Schmoller, because he's actually a very good director, and mm-hmm. he's made some very, very good movies. He made Tourist Trap, which is one of the best yeah. horror movies most people haven't seen. That movie is wild, and it never goes where you think it's going to go. He made a film called The Seduction, which is actually one of the better stalking thrillers out there. Okay, There's some weird stuff at the ending, but it's actually really, really well handled. Uh, and he made the original Puppet Master. That's right. Which is uh, which is very, very good. So, credit to David Schmoller. The second thing is actually a question I want to ask you about Fitzgeraldo, because the plot of the movie, as you just said, uh. is Guy wants to put an opera house in the middle of the jungle. Mm. For who? For people in the jungle, I suppose. Well, that's that's the the madness of it, isn't okay, it? Okay, I just want to make sure. Did it start, I wasn't sure if it started out as, yeah. ma- as madness, or if it seems like, no, you don't understand. There's People are going to come from miles around to see how great this mm-hmm. opera house is, or is it just kind of like this weird fool's errand? Yeah. And, and here's the yeah. bizarre thing. Uh, it stars Klaus Kinski. Yeah. It originally had, uh, in that role, um, uh, uh, mm. Jason Robards. Jason Robards, yeah. Uh, it was going to be Jason Robards uh, and Mick Jagger. <laughs> Wow, now that's a cast. <laughs> In, instead of Klaus Kinski, it was going to be Jason Robards and Mick Jagger as sort of like the, the co-leads. And they even shot some footage, and yeah. then Harrison was like, mm, not not working for me. Ah, uh, that's... So uh, Klaus, he cast Klaus Kinski. He took Klaus Kinski down into the jungle. Yeah. Uh, where they didn't have access to anything. Yeah. Uh, they had local, local talent, local crew, who they actually had to hire... To really drag a boat, like, and it's yeah. not like a rowboat. Like, it's yeah. a, it's a huge, like, steam not a steamship, but it's like a gigantic, yeah. like, paddle wheel kind it, of a boat. It's a thing they 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 they're like, not faking it. Like, they had like to actually ship, yeah. do the thing. And the movie is about how doing that thing is stupid. It's, it's stupid and, they had and difficult, to do it. and people and people are gonna die doing it. And they actually did it. And, and uh, boy, is that ironic. And when the cameras weren't rolling, Klaus Kinski was flipping out at every available opportunity. And. Uh, Less blank, a documentarian made a film about the making of Fitzcarraldo, even though it's kind of telling its own making anyway. Yeah, uh, it's called, called Bur- Burden of Dreams. Yeah, and it just sort of gives you a little bit more insight. And there's all these stories about how horrible Klaus Kinski was. Is it? A and, sad- uh, Everyone always talks about the making of this movie, yeah. and how absolutely horrible it was, and how what a strange concept it is. You know what? No one ever talks about it. And I'm sure you can, hmm. but I want to make sure we take a second. Just, just. To, it, how does the story play? Is it actually well, like really satisfying? Is it beautiful? Is it tragic? Is it horrifying? What it's, is it? It's because it's telling the story of how difficult this is. It is a story of madness. It's a okay. story of uh, of folly okay. and how we are given to folly as as a species. Mm. The the themes that you see in a lot of Herzog movies, uh, and and that really reads. And you know, as it mm. gr- the longer it grinds on, the stronger it gets. Mm. And so it just gets more and more frustrating, more and more frustrating, and. People are dying. It's like, are you going to give up on this ridiculous quest, which was ridiculous from the start? No. We, now, And at some point, it becomes about pride. It becomes about ac- accomplishing this impossible task right. rather than accomplishing anything beyond it. Uh, and Burden of Dreams talks about how the same, the same was true of production. Yeah. Uh, and... The, you know, a, a lot of the... Because Klaus Kinski was so uh, difficult, all of the... Uh, 
native talent uh, once approached uh, Werner Herzog and said, hey, we can kill Klaus Kinski. <laughs> so it's another smaller story. And, uh, and, and Werner Herzog said, um, I mean, yeah, but I mean, I couldn't make the movie without him. So mm-hmm. maybe not kill him today. <laughs> it's yeah. like he wanted him dead. Like he didn't care. And, uh, Evidently, there was uh, this really wonderful story that Herzog tells about how Klaus Kinski was you know, yelling at him and accusing him of doing all of these things. He's just being uh, difficult on set. And Herzog was getting so mad. Like, he wanted to just throttle him right then and there. And rather than do that, he went back to his tent. Mm-hmm. And he got a, a... Because they're all sleeping in tents. They don't have, like, mm-hmm. a lot of food. They're just sort of eating... Yeah, they're, they're eating really like roughing it out They're really, yeah, really roughing it. And... He went into his tent and got out the one treat he had that he didn't tell anybody about. It was a bar of chocolate. Mm. So, and he took out took out the bar of chocolate. He got it from his tent. He went back to Klaus Kinski, stared him right in the eyes, unwrapped it, and just ate the whole chocolate right in front of Klaus Kinski. <laughs> and Klaus Kinski shut the hell up after that. <laughs> With this treat, I'm going to... I have it. I'm going to eat it. It's mine. I have this power over you. So Fitzcarraldo is is a wonderful tale. I love that tale. it ended up being actually kind of cute. Yeah, <laughs> you think it's gonna be, and then he like pulled out a bear trap. And yeah, like, no, like, it's pulled like, out his Kalskinski's tooth right in front of her. No, yeah, nothing yeah. like that. He's, he ate a bar of chocolate right in front of him defiantly. Jesus Christ! Yeah, and and Herzog also made a documentary called My Best Fiend, which is all about his work because he made like five or six movies with. Yeah, Klaus he kept Kinski, working with yeah. the guy. <laughs> like they hated each other, but, but they, they kept good. playing movies together. He was yeah. so good. He did. He was good at playing. Yeah that kind of a maniac and that was the kind of character Herzog wanted so uh, it's a great movie about human folly but it's also a great movie about like the anecdotal nature of filmmaking so it it has like all these extra narratives going on around it alright well uh, my last pick and again my number one was Faster Pussycat but we already got to it so my last pick uh, earlier in the list, I talked about Fright Night. Fright Night is a movie that where I think the original is dramatically better than the remake, but the remake is really quite good. Mm. Here, the opposite is true. Okay. Because here, the original is great, and you should see the original. It's super well done. It's very, very good. But the remake is transcendent, and I am, of course, talking about The Fly. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. I, I like The Fly. I also like The Fly. Yeah. The original The Fly is a story about a scientist, and he's married, and he's inventing basically a teleporter, and then he ends up teleporting himself, but there was a fly that got caught in the machine as well, and his genes get spliced with the fly. And it's actually pretty well made, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the monster effects are, you know, nowhere near what they would be in the Cronenberg version. The, but they're, it's, they're really scary. Like, they, they, they put a fly mask on a human actor and it's pretty in, good in a way that they made his head look small than a human head yeah like it's just a really good makeup effect no it's excellently done and there's a there's a really wonderful sense of real tragedy to it it feels like a classic universal monster tale Mm. because he's he can sense his mind going and he knows Mm. that if he transforms into too much of a fly he's not even if they find the fly with the human parts on it Uh which is something that they're trying to find which is nearly impossible Mm. where's this one fly (laughs) Uh, but if they can try to capture that he might be able to, to reverse it but if they if his mind goes he won't be able to do it. So it's this horrible deadline and he's deteriorating and it's really sad and it's tragic. And it has, if you haven't seen it, one of the most iconic horror movie endings of all time. The original The Fly. Mm. Absolutely stunning. Great image. Great sound. Oh my God. It's excellent. 
David Cronenberg remade The Fly with mm. Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. And it's basically the same story. Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis aren't like happily married with a kid, but they're at the start of the relationship. But functionally, it's basically the same thing. He's a scientist. He's just trying to figure out how to shift mass from one spot to another with nothing in between, teleportation. He ends up getting cocky, doing it himself, and he ends up splicing his genes with a fly, and it slowly transforms into more of a fly creature, and he's enough of a scientist that he becomes kind of morbidly fascinated with what's happening to him, but it's a horrible tragedy. David Cronenberg didn't just update the movie with contemporary 1980s goop effects, which were the greatest of all goop effects. I was going to say, you're... you're goop effects is is selling it far too short yeah this movie is maybe the greatest makeup movie of all time and that's Mm. saying something this was i believe not i think this won the academy award for best makeup the same year that legend came out Mm. and when you watch legend you're like how did legend lose best makeup and then you find out it came out the same year as The Fly, and you're like, oh yeah, that's how. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I, I see it. Mm. It's like when you find out, like, oh man, how did, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember what else was nominated, like, how did Network lose Best Picture? Same year as Rocky. Okay, I get it. That makes <laughs> it's, That's a tough call, man. Mm. But I get it. That, make, that, that makes a certain amount of sense, that kind of thing. So, um, it has these incredibly gorgeous, yet terrifying, and absolutely disgusting makeup effects. But the true genius of the, the remake of The Fly is David Cronenberg's sensitivity. He's not doing that for shock effect. Mm-hmm. He saw The Fly for what it is, a story of someone dying slowly. And he, he dis- uh, yeah, he, he's gone on record yeah. uh, saying that multiple times, in mm-hmm. fact, he's talked talked about The Fly a lot, uh, that he was inspired to make the movie after watching his parents uh, yeah. die from disease. Yeah. And if you've, and and it's horrifying, and I hope no one has to go through it, but if you ever have, Mm. you know that watching someone that you care about die gradually and seeing like their energy fade and their, them like losing their, their character changes, losing their physical faculties, uh, uh, going through the pain of knowing that death is coming mm. and how that affects you psychologically and how that is... A, a, it's, a, it's a scary thing uh-huh. to both experience for yourself and to witness uh, someone who cares about them. And David Cronenberg said, I'm going to take this monster movie and I'm going to make the ultimate movie about dying slowly. Mm-hmm. And he did. Not only is it a great scary monster movie, it is one of the most sensitive movies about death. It is genuinely tragic and sad. It is genuinely loving. It talks about difficult moral questions Uh about death and having some control over your death and your legacy. Um, It's painful. It's scary. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful motion picture. And it is also a really grotesque horror film. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the greats. It was really close between this and Faster Pussy Guy for my number one. Okay. David Cronenberg's The Fly, I think, is an absolute masterpiece any way you look at it. Mm. Um, and I love it to pieces. And I'm someone who's, I've mentioned this before, I'm phobic of deaths. That scares mm. the shit out of me. Um, this movie doesn't make it any easier, but it does capture a lot of the things I think about. Right. In a very profound way. Yeah, uh, yeah. So listen, do not overlook the original. The original is great. I've actually never seen the sequel to the original. Return of the Fly. I've never yeah. seen Return of the Fly. 
I can't speak to that. I have seen The Fly 2, starring Eric Stoltz and Daphne Zuniga. That movie is... That movie's sick. That movie <laughs> is Speaking disgusting. If you thought The Fly was gross, The Fly 2 is grosser. Yeah, they try to, They yeah. really up the goop factor. And it's nowhere near as good. It's, no, it's, it's not. It's not all. It's not good, but if you yeah. want to be grossed out, that's a yeah. really good movie. It, it's not It's not like, you know, like a total wash. Like, if you like, like, really gross monster effects, and some really bad things happen in it. Like, mm. it's a very... Um, it's it's not for every constitution. That's for goddamn sure. Uh, and it's yeah, it's nowhere near as smart as the original. But it's <laughs> there, I've seen worse sequels. Um, <laughs> anyway, I love the fly to pieces. Please see yeah. the fly. Uh, and then finally, I, and I have a theory, but I, I'm gonna right. I'm gonna if I'm gonna go, aha, I knew it. Uh, we'll see. So, uh, what is your number one pick? Uh, should I just say it, or should I lead into it? Do you want just me to say tease it. it out? It's Fanny and Alexander. Well, wait a minute, Fanny and Alexander uh, in this economy. In this yeah. economy, yeah. I'm sure I knew you it was coming. That. Yeah. I knew um, it was coming. I, because I love Fanny and Alexander. I know. I, lo- I love Ingmar yeah. Bergman. Uh, yeah. he, he, he's my jam. He, he's yeah. he's my guy. Um, I just like that he finally found a way to take the Fanny franchise and the Alexander franchise oh and combine them into a multiverse. You philistine. <laughs> you haven't even seen Fanny and Alexander, actually, no, have I you? Yeah. Actually, no, I I mean, I, I've seen some Bergman, but I actually have a lot of, I have a lot of uh, uh, gaps in my Bergman. I, uh, this is a big one, yeah. I got that big old box set for myself for my birthday one year. Yes, I remember so, that day. So, I, yeah, I got this huge brick of nothing but Bergman movies. Yeah. If you ever want to borrow it. The cool thing about that Criterion Bergman box set is uh, it's curated. Uh-huh. It's not just, here's Bergman's filmography presented chronologically. That would be the obvious way to do it. And it would be actually, fine. Yeah, they actually present it in a way where uh, it they're all mixed up. And there's two films on each disc, and they're paired sort of like vaguely thematically. These would be a good double feature. Yeah, is the implication. Yeah. So uh, they've they've laid it out for you, and I think that's actually a really brilliant way to put out a box set. I like it. Uh, Fanny and Alexander was released in the United States in the early '80s as a feature film mm. uh, that was cut down to three hours. Uh, told in two parts, a so scant a, three hours. Well, it, it came from. Uh, a, a Swedish television and ran five hours, so they actually cut out a lot of it. So you're saying it's a TV show? Well, that, that's the thing. Do you, are you going to let let me have the five hour version, or do I have to do the three hour? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, I literally don't care. I think we make too big a deal out of those distinctions. Yeah, yeah. If you're not deciding if it's if you're not deciding if it should be eligible for the Emmys or the Oscars, I think it's irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, like I, it's Unless it's like super duper serialized and it's told mm-hmm. over like 20 episodes or something like that, I think that might be pushing it. But no, I think you're yeah. fine. Uh, Fanny and Alexander are two children. Uh, yeah. They uh, have a sort of a, a benevolent, theater-loving father who treats them very, very well. He's very passionate about the arts. Uh, they live in a very incredibly lush, well-moneyed mansion. Uh, the film opens with... And it's semi-autobiographical. There's a lot of elements of Bergman's own childhood in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a really wonderful uh, like tree of life moment early on that I'm very fond of, where uh, Alexander, the young boy, is looking out at you know I think it's a dining room and there's a you know, really lush table and there's chairs around it and there's like art everywhere and there's a statue in the corner and he looks right at the statue and the statue moves like unmistakably it yeah. moves its arm and he's terrified. And we never come back to that. There's not mm. a supernatural element to this movie. Uh, That's just life. It. I think we all have a memory like that, don't mm. we? Some inexplicable thing. Yeah. Uh, there probably was an explanation or our imagination is playing tricks on us. Yeah, uh, or maybe something's fantastical. But like, mm. yeah, I got a few. Um, mm. Nothing specific. 
Yeah, I, uh, tricks of the light. You know, uh, there's that kind of there's thing. a scene like that in Tree of Life as well, where the, yeah. like a little child from a little child's point of view, you see a chair moving on its own. Yeah. Um, I have a very distinct memory, mm. un, un, very clear, uninterrupted memory of uh, I have a, I had a staircase in my childhood home uh-huh. of leaping off the top step and floating gently down the staircase and landing on the floor at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I remember doing that. It wasn't extraordinary at the time. It was just something yeah. I could do. Yeah. How very Manglehorn of you. Uh, maybe so, but... Uh, <laughs> I love that I was able to throw in a Manglehorn Manglehorn reference, reference yeah. yeah. Nobody's referred to Manglehorn since it's released. You're welcome. I like Manglehorn. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, eventually this... Uh, it, it's the early 1900s as well. It's a period piece. And uh, father is very ill, and father ends up dying. And the fate of the children and their widowed mother is now up to question, and they end up having to move in to uh, and it, it's all takes place at Christmas so it's all very lush and then there's death and it's all very sad mm. and uh, then uh, they have to move into uh, sort of the, essentially the home of their wicked stepfather mm. and uh, you know the the end of, end of the first half is they've moved into the house of their wicked stepfather and wouldn't you know it, there's bars on the windows now they're uh, imprisoned yeah and he, end and, act one yeah pretty much mm. You know, red screen and act one and yeah. as we fade up on act two it's like oh th- things are not rosy because here's like a little crick and there's a dead animal in it <laughs> it's like there's just death and uh yeah Ingmar and now, Bergman a notoriously subtle filmmaker <laughs> and all, all of a sudden all the colors drained out of the movie and it's about these young children have kind of have to survive and things get so bad that they end up having to be rescued and there's a lot of issues of uh the, the hypocrisy of people of faith, which mm. was a big issue for Ingmar Bergman. He had a, yeah. a father who was a pastor, but also was very abusive. And this is sort of co- colored his view of faith and religion, which is yeah. something he talks about ceaselessly throughout most of his filmography. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they end up sort of like being rescued and having to drift away and how the uh, Fanny and Alexander really sort of cling on to each other. It's it's an opera of a movie. All, mm. all of the human experience is sort of encapsulated in all of these like little kind of chapters and moments. And I feel like... Mm-hmm. It feels almost Dickensian in a way. Uh, but, but without that kind of Dickensian melodrama, it's ah. not like these bigger-than-life characters. They're very human characters, mm-hmm. essentially, because that's the way... Bergman worked. He was very humane. He was very interested in sort of the emotional states of these characters. And Take I think that Dickens. Yeah, fuck you, Dickens. <laughs> you knowing Mark Bergman. <laughs> poo on you. Yeah, poo on you. Dealing dealing with orphans as well. Oh wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe there were some similarities. Uh, no, but. Uh, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of like the childhood experience that Bergman Bergman is essentially trying to sort of wrap up childhood in a movie, mm. uh, but not not in a, a way like uh, Linklater did with Boyhood, where he's trying to get sort of like beginning to end. Right, he's trying to get a lot of the emotional complexities of what it's like to be a child, mm. and uh, in a way that only Bergman could. I feel like a lot of uh, films, especially American films about kids tend mm. to project onto children a certain kind of innocence from the adult's perspective. It tends to be, and in my experience, it's usually one or the other. They either go for pure, innocent childhood, oh, they have so much to teach us, don't they? Mm. Or wise beyond their years, and yeah, very like little in between. like little adults. Yeah. Very little in between a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, it's very, it can be disappointing. And, and there are plenty of movies that actually get the childhood experience right. Sure, uh, and every childhood experience yeah. is different. I'm sure some exactly, people would yeah. feel more akin to one movie than another. Yeah, but, but yeah. Uh, 
I think that's why a lot of people, I don't believe I'm going to compare this to Fanny and Alexander, but uh, Richard Donner's The Goonies, uh, <laughs> a movie I'm not too fond of, frankly. No, uh, neither. I'm not a huge fan of The Goonies. I, I understand, yeah. but I'm not, don't love it. Uh, I, I, but, I always wanted the pipe organ made of human bones. That, that was pretty I thought cool that was scene, cool. Yeah. That's a great set piece right there. That but I think a, a, a big part of The Goonies, I think yeah. a big part of the appeal of The Goonies is Richard Donner uh, mm. understood kind of the, the crass mess of kids yeah they're they're mean to each other and they hurl yeah. insults and they talk dirty and they tell dirty jokes and they yell a lot and they just there's not a scene goes by there where there's not a lot of kids talking at the same time and yeah uh i mean they can get a little grating after a while but that's yeah. kind of the point point. and sometimes their meanness goes beyond childhood meanness and just becomes like just Oh, this is just fat phobic, isn't it? This is just mean to the yeah, fat kid, isn't it? The, uh, or this is just kind of racist, isn't it? I, I got to write an article recently. I think his name is Jeff Cohen, the actor yeah. who played Chunk uh, yeah. in, in that movie. And, and he became a famous uh, lawyer, didn't he? Like a he, pretty, he did. Yeah. He opened his own law practice. Yeah. And uh, he had a lot of trouble getting work because uh, he, he he had a type. He was yeah. like funny fat kid. And uh, he said yeah. he would go to, go to auditions for all of the funny fat kid characters. Same four kids at every audition. Yeah, it was and him like, and the guy from the Monster Squad. And yeah, the, like there were like yeah. the same same actors. And after a while, I couldn't get any work because he a he went through puberty. Yeah, uh, he he slimmed down, which you know that was that was his shtick. You're, you're a funny, type. You're yeah, a funny fat kid. You're not a kid. You're not fat anymore. You can't can't cast you. Yeah. She actually wrote a letter to Richard Donner's, like saying, "Hey, I can't get any work." I've you know been like getting some scant acting work here and there, and I'm gonna leave acting, and I, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go to law school. I can't afford it. Richard Donner and his wife paid his whole way. Oh, that's really yeah. nice. Like, Good for and, them. and he's still got a law practice, so Good he he's stuck with that. So Good yeah, wonder Good. if he paid him back. <laughs> you're, you're a lawyer now. You can probably do it, right? I mean, I realize it's probably they well, probably I mean, did. Richard really didn't Donner's passed now, but yeah. I know not that long ago. Like <laughs> that's true. Right? Time. I he I I don't assume he had to. I'm sure the Donner family but, was fine with it. Because Laura Shirley Donner is wealthy producer as well. They're exactly. Not yeah. They're okay. <laughs> no, but no, he's hurting. They, yeah. they they could pay for a kid's law school just yeah. out of pocket. Uh, yeah. I have that. But, How much do you want to take in? I don't. I don't want to talk about wallet. the Goonies. I want to talk about Fanny and Alexander. I want uh, you to talk about nothing but the Goonies in this review of Fanny and Alexander. <laughs> I want to see how you can do it. The point being, I, I feel like uh, a movie like that was trying to go for a certain kind of childhood authenticity, and yeah. I feel like um, Ingmar Bergman is also shooting for childhood authenticity. But uh, Bergman acknowledges that kids are actually a little bit more complex. They're not just one thing. Uh, yeah. And that's sort of the error of the Goonies. Every kid yeah. has sort of like a trait. Yeah, there's there's pretty yeah, yeah. easy to, easy to categorize. Yeah. Yeah. Messy and authentic, but yeah, they're kind of archetypes yeah. at the same time. Uh, Fanny, Fanny and Alexander, the two characters, they're young. They're kids. They're not terribly sophisticated. They don't have any agency in their own story because yeah. they're kids. They're being pulled along. They're yeah. being uh, you know, love is showered upon them. Their father dies, and then abuse is showered upon them it's like they, they don't really have a lot of agency and they essentially are experiencing life the way a kid experiences life and they're yeah. really distressed and they're really kind of horrified by what's going on with them yeah. and at the same time that's something we can all relate to that's actually something yeah. very human about these characters uh and you know of course all the adult characters are great and they the photography in Fanny and Alexander, some of the best you'll ever see. Oh, wow. It's like, you know, right up there with like the red shoes in terms of like cinema's great photography. Wow. That's saying something. Um, and and it, it was Sven Nickvist who shot yeah. most of Bergman's movies. Yeah. 
yeah, just the the way they ca- uh, he captures light. There's this certain kind of. Uh, sumptuous photography that was really hot in the 1980s mm-hmm. uh, that you'd see in a lot of prestige pictures at the time that, you know, like the mission or that, that Tarzan movie, just these really beautifully mm-hmm. shot movies uh, that it's sort of out of fashion now. Mm. The sort of very hazy, I'm trying to think of some other examples like chariots of fire, maybe uh, films mm. that just look really, really beautiful. But these aren't the movies from the 80s that we talk about yeah. because... Nobody, uh, there are very few straight-up dramas from the 80s yeah, that people talk about the way they talk about yeah. Ghostbusters or Gremlins. Yeah, the, the movies from the 19... When we, people refer to 80s cinema, they refer to kids' cinema from the yeah. 1980s, the movies yeah. that kids were watching. When was the last time you heard someone do like a, like a sketch comedy bit about Room with a View? Yeah, or Ordinary People, you yeah. know. Or, 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 or Out of Africa. Best picture-winning movies. We've yeah. seen two of them. Nobody, nobody, nobody really, talks about those nobody, terms of endearment. Yeah, uh, yeah Hannah and Terms her sisters. Yeah, these these yeah. Uh, big, big high profile drama. And then they uh, and a lot of them made money too. Like yeah, they actually they were, did really these well. Were successful movies. These yeah. were what the the films that adults were watching in the nineteen eighties. And uh, if any, and, and Alexander was one of those. This was on sort of like the art house circuit. Bergman mm. was like a regular installation uh, all throughout the nineteen eighties. Um, I remember my my mom telling me stories about how when I was a kid mm-hmm. uh, going to see Ingmar Bergman movies mm. uh, and how. Uh, she went to go see the movie Shame, which is uh, Bergman makes some pretty raw movies, and that's one of the rawer ones. Uh, it's a World War II film, and yeah, it's like starts out with this couple who's feeling the squeeze of the war, and by the end, they're literally pushing dead bodies out of the way of their boat as they float essentially across the river Styx. Yeah. Uh, it's you know just really rough stuff in that movie. Uh, this was one of those movies. This was a movie that was really highly talked about by adults. And I I feel because it has the association of a celebrity director mm-hmm. that it does enter the conversation a lot. It's been kept alive. It was put in the, the Criterion collection. So it's not obscure. Mm. But I feel like it's not watched enough by people my age. <laughs> I feel like yeah. this was like my parents' movie. And, yeah. uh, you know, film critics know this movie. Film school students yeah. know this I, movie. I know it. Listen, yeah, I, I've, had to, I've had to eat... Uh... Had to eat shit a few times on this podcast because you put quite a few films on your list that I just haven't seen, and I know they're prominent films. Yeah, yeah. and I have to just be upfront and just say, yeah, okay, I haven't seen everything. I'm, I'm, I, I, well, you, you, uh, so you that, saw every movie. That's, on my that's list, my number one. That's faster, yeah. uh, faster. Alexander kill mm. Fanny. Yeah, uh, in this economy. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, real fast. Uh, Let's talk about. Do you have any films on your runners-up list? Oh yeah, I got, wanna... a, I got a bunch of runners-up. Yeah, actually, yeah, because yeah. it's obviously it's a big category. Yeah. Um, so I'll do my runners-up first, and you just talk a lot about your, your number one film. Uh, so, and again, tons. I'm going to be as quick as I can about most of these. Uh, awesome 1930s uh, expose about how corrupt the media can be. Five Star Final, starring Edward G. Robinson and Boris Karloff. Right. Great movie, almost on my list. Uh, the Bruce Lee film, Fist of Fury. Uh, is one of the main like lodestones in the action genre. There are movies mm-hmm. before it and after it. It's excellent. Didn't just didn't quite make it. Um, let's see. Fargo, excellent motion picture. Force Majeure is one of just the most emotional, mm-hmm. like just just bitter emotional films. I love that movie. Yeah. A movie that came very close to making my list that most people don't like as much as I do is David Ayer's Fury. Yeah, I know you're very fond of Fury, and Fury, yeah. Fury is just misery. It's, it's one of such the, a miserable movie. It's one of the few because I t- we we recently reviewed on critically acclaimed a movie called The Greatest Beer Run Ever, and we talked about how it really sanitized the Vietnam War. 
Mm. Ayer was going for the exact opposite. He wanted to show only the traumatic stuff mm. in World War II, which was a lot of it, and basically just kind of be like the antidote to a lot of Hollywood mm. sort of World War II filmmaking. It's really excellent. I like that movie a lot. Uh, let's see here. Fantasia. I haven't uh, seen Fantasia. You've never seen Fantasia? No. Wow, okay. Uh, came very close to my list, Fast Five. <laughs> it's just a great blockbuster, top-down, everything about it works. Same thing I'd say about the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Uh, movies I'm very fond of, but didn't quite make the the, the top echelon. Fa- the Both the Father of the Bride movies. And the new one's okay, too, actually. I just realized there's a third one with uh, Andy Garcia. And that one's okay. But oh, yeah. the, uh, the Spencer Tracy the and the Steve one, Martin yeah. ones are funnier I've, for me. I've... I've... Steve Martin, uh, yeah. there were two of those, and I saw the Steve Martin ones yeah. uh, in the 90s, but I, I actually haven't seen Spencer Tracy or Andy Garcia. So. Okay. Uh, let's see. Fantastic Mr. Fox came very close to my list. I love that movie one. to pieces. Yeah. It's a living diorama. Uh, let's see here. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a film that has a lot of problems, but I grew up with it. I want to give it a quick shout out. Mm. Uh, give it some time. The Fear Street trilogy might make my list. <laughs> uh, it's really excellent. Uh, we talked about A Few Good Men recently. We talked about legal thrillers. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Final Destination 2, I think, is one of the best horror movies ever. Oh, not 3? No. Three? Three's fun. They're all they're all fun. T- 2 has some really good deaths. I think 3 might be my favorite. That's the one with, with that. 3 is the one with the the, te- the roller coaster and yeah. the tanning bed deaths. Yeah, I think yeah. that's my favorite I, one. Totally respectable. I think 2 is the one that does it for me. The Fisher King is amazing. Uh, Fistful of Dynamite is one of maybe <laughs> the, the, the most underrated Sergio Leone Western. Like, mm-hmm. not everyone talks about it, but it's excellent. Five Easy Pieces is really, really great. Yeah, okay. uh, animated movie, not everyone talks about. The Flight of Dragons. It's a very. It's not really widely seen, though. No, it's yeah. not. But it's neat, though. It's about a guy who's like a, a fantasy, modern fantasy nerd, and he gets pulled into the world of fantasy in the body of a dragon, and he just sort of like is fascinated by everything around him, and he starts trying to explain everything through science. It's really great. Uh, Peter Jackson's Forgotten Silver is maybe. Oh, the I didn't. Re- I didn't. Re- I didn't remember that one. Uh, that's one of maybe the least talked about movie in his career because it was like a made-for-TV thing. Uh, it is a documentary about the most innovative uh, filmmaker from New Zealand. He invented color photography before anyone else did and never got credit for it. He invented synchronized sound before anyone mm-hmm. else did and never got credit for it. And he didn't exist. It's, it's fictional. It's, it's a fictional a thing. But it's basically like, you know, it, Peter Jackson's like taking like old World War II footage and like trying to find new things to do with it. World this is where War I footage. Sorry, World War I footage. Yeah. This is where he started doing stuff like that. Mm. It's basically trying to create this historical fiction using the language of the era. It's really quite good. A um, couple more. Uh, 40 Guns with Barbara Stanwyck is an amazing Western nobody talks about. It's great. Uh, let's see. Fortress. Uh, the is Stuart a, Gordon movie? Yeah, it's a wild movie. <laughs> I, I really love that movie. Yeah, Fortress yeah. Rules. Another Stuart Gordon movie from Beyond. Also super wild. A movie I wasn't super hot on when it came out, but the more I, the more I think about it, the more it grows on me. Francis Ha. Oh, I love it Francis. It is wonderful. Oh, yeah. uh, the French Connection is great. You know what's also great? The French Connection 2. Do not overlook it. Gene Hackman, I think, arguably gives a better performance in it. Really yeah. quite excellent. And a movie that, uh, another one that I think it just it just keeps getting more powerful with time is Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station. I haven't seen Fruitvale Station. That's an excellent, yeah. it's a really excellent film. It's really, you can you can tell watching and it's like, that guy's going to be a big director. Nice. All right, and give me something, what else? Uh, I actually had a lot of the similar ones. Um, five, five Easy Pieces was on mine. Mm. The Fly was on my runners up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's kind of a dumb movie, but I'm, uh, kind of enjoyed Face Off uh, when it came out. Face Off is great. Yeah, I, I kind, kind of up. shrunk a little in my estimation, yeah. but I still got to shout it out. Um, not just Frankenstein, but Flesh for Frankenstein. Oh! The, the uh, Andy Warhol movie. Yeah, with Udo Kier. Uh, uh, 
you said Forbidden Planet. I'm also very fond of Forbidden Zone. Uh, oh, yeah. The Richard Elfman musical. Yeah. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof speaking musical oh, is yeah. a really good one. Oh, shit. I should have put uh, that on my runners up. That's fair. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I watched uh, A Fish Called Wanda a heck of a lot when I was younger. When A Fish Called Wanda is funny, there is no funnier movie. Yeah. When it's not funny, it's still pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love how unwatchable Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is. Yeah. Like, that's chaos. Yeah. I, uh, that, but, that, like, in it, an appealing way. It really me. captures the spirit of Hunter S. Thompson yeah. in a way that probably no movie should. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably not a good idea. It, in terms of uh, uh, Wes Anderson films, I think The French Dispatch really kind of nailed a lot for me. You like uh, the movie a lot more yeah. than I did. It's good, though. Uh, in terms of horror movies, Friday the 13th, Part 2. Yes. Uh, that's my favorite one. And mm. uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare is... Oh, come on. It's terrible, but it's crazy. And it kinda, it is. Like, terrible uh, okay i'll let it go uh, for i also put force majeure i also put fargo mm-hmm. um uh Teshigahara's Face of Another I've never seen is, that. Yeah, a Japanese drama about somebody who like, gets a face transplant. Okay. Uh, I also put Fear Street on mine. That's probably going to continue getting mentioned. Francis Ha. Fences. Oh, uh, yeah. Denzel yeah. Washington's Fences. It's a movie, yeah. really good movie. Yeah. I also I'll put Fright Night and... Uh, this is a film I actually really like, but I'm loath to bring it up just because it has so many bros around it. But mm. David Fincher's Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Is, that yeah. deserved an honorable mention, actually. Yeah. yeah I should have put that down. Uh, that you know, kind of uh, really captured a lot of that MTV mm. aesthetic of the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I think it uh, captured a lot of nihilism of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. I think it's widely misinterpreted. Yeah. Uh, it's not about masculinity. It's about how masculinity is a destructive force. Yep. Uh, However, it's probably too good at presenting characters who make the opposite argument for its own good. Uh, it it presents the it has the the clockwork orange problem yeah. in that it ha- its villainous characters are like the coolest damn thing you'll ever see they're, they're the like most really magnetic characters and, yeah, in the film yeah. you really want to watch them and you really like them mm-hmm. even though what they're saying is meant to be rejected yeah it's kind of it's kind of the problem making a story like that you need yeah. your protagonist to be interesting and then you overdo it and you kind of mm-hmm. undermine your whole point so yeah. I, I I get the cool and I think it's really appealing but I'm also listening and I, I feel yeah. like uh, the, the most important scene in Fight Club is one that people don't talk about. Which one? It's where, uh, after they get into a car wreck, mm-hmm. there's a bit where um, uh, Brad Pitt just takes his hands off of a car wheel and they yeah. just see what happens. Yeah. And they get in a car wreck and they're yeah. all sort of injured. And then there's this weird hallucinatory sequence where uh, uh, Edward Norton's kind of recovering from that experience. And uh, Brad Pitt is giving this speech about oh, yeah. how when, when this is all done the jungles will take back the cities and we get to climb vines up and down these jungles and just be men again. And you realize that this is sort of like the masculine fantasy he wants. He wants the end of the world. He wants to be Lord of the wasteland. Mm-hmm. And the when film society is, collapses. Men will rule. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is actually what the end result of toxic masculinity is yeah. the end of the world. Yeah. It's an apocalyptic movie. It is. And I feel like that one scene that kind of encapsulates what the movie is about, weirdly, the one nobody talks about. Well, because it's a movie where Brad Pitt's basically just like sitting down and talking. Yeah. Like, essentially, because Fight Club was one of the most, one of the most dynamic movies ever filmed. Like, no, Fincher filmed the shit out of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's seriously, it's some of the most exciting filmmaking you'll ever see in one film. Um, I think, the, again, I think the movie has some trouble with its messaging because, it, and uh, for the reasons the, the, that we stated. The style overwhelms the message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then I get it. But my God, is it exciting to produce. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. my God. Yeah, you're right. That that deserves an honorable mention. That's just me somehow mm. neglecting to put that. That's yeah. just an oversight. Because that movie definitely deserves an honorable mention. All right, that is it for The Iron List. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, real fast, here are our picks. 
because I know some people uh, don't don't uh, don't always have time don't, to write anything don't down. Don't write them down. Yeah. Yeah. So just real fast, uh, Whitney's top ten. Uh, I'm going to go in order, but again, the order doesn't matter except for number one. Uh, Frankenhooker. <laughs> A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Fantastic Planet. The Five Obstructions. F for Fake. Feed the Kitty, the Looney Tunes short. Female Trouble. Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Fitzcarraldo and his number one, Fanny and Alexander. And my top ten, uh, James Whale's Frankenstein. Uh, the comedy for a good time call. Flash Gordon, the movie, not the serial. F for fake. Uh, the Freshman, that's the Matthew Broderick movie, not the silent movie. Uh, Finding Nemo. Fright Night, the original film. Forbidden Planet. The Fly, the remake, but I do recommend the original. And my number one was Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Uh, next time on the Iron List, uh, again, all of our patrons get to vote for what the next list is. We're going to set aside the best movie that started with a blank for, for a month or two. Give it a rest. And the options for the next one, and you can vote if you head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. The options are the best slumber party movies. Movies to watch at a slumber party, and and, and we can interpret that what that means. Yeah, that's that's not necessarily one genre or another. That's that's going to be a very, yeah, that's for us. It's, to it's very it, going to be incredibly subjective. Yes, yeah. uh, the best romantic comedies. Yeah, uh, the best anthology horror movies. These are horror movies that contain multiple stories. Uh, not necessarily saying any of these films are going to make that list, but for example, stuff like Tales from the Crypt and Creep Show. Mm. Uh, and finally, witch movies. Movies about witches or witchcraft in some way. Not necessarily limited to a certain genre. Doesn't have to be horror movies. Could be comedies. Could be dramas. Witch movies. Vote for the uh, Iron List you want us to do next time. It will not be next month. It will be before the end of October. Uh, we ran into some snags last week and we had to uh, put off a few things. So this episode's a little late. Sorry about that. But this one will air in the month of October. So thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to share your favorite films, any films that you think we neglected or missed uh, that begin with the letter F that you think are some of the best movies ever made, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. Box. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual physical letter to P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, we might read your email or letter on an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. Very special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive shows over there, and you can listen to episodes like this and all of our other new programming ad-free. Which, you know, mm. bonus. Uh, let's see here. Uh, don't forget to head on over to patreon.com slash saltcatsoap if you want, if you live in the United States anyway, and we're currently U.S. only, uh, if you want us to ship handmade, handcrafted soaps from myself and my partner, M. Lapis Da Silva. Uh, if you are currently a patron, you should be getting a glow-in-the-dark werewolf soap <laughs> in the mail pretty soon. In the next couple of weeks, that'll be uh, that'll be in your in your mailbox. Enjoy, uh, and um, yeah, I think that's uh, oh Dante. I don't know if you can hear Dante. Dante's meowing. He wants you to know that he loves you. He's one of our cats. <laughs> anyway, thank you everybody for listening. That's the list. <laughs>